Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Nat Turner's 1831 slave rebellion stuns the nation and pushes the South's slave policing system to its limits. For white Virginians and white slaveholders across the South, it was uh, a shock. The paranoia shoots off the scale. 50 dead today, how many dead tomorrow? In Southampton County, Virginia, Nat Turner, an enslaved preacher, has his own interpretation of the Bible. He believes that God has chosen him to avenge the sins of slavery. As Turner makes his rounds preaching in the fields, he quietly enlists other slaves to his cause. For months, the men meet secretly, conspiring on the plans of their uprising. In the early morning hours of August 21st, 1831, Turner and his men launch one of the largest slave rebellions in American history. The rebels move from home to home, killing every white person they meet. As they advance towards the nearby town of Jerusalem, more recruits join them. The local slave patrols have failed to uncover Turner's plot. So the militia is called out to track down and kill the rebels. For 36 hours, the rebellion rages on. Church bells ring out in distress. Rumors spread among whites that the whole southern slave population has finally exploded in revolt and that the British are invading to liberate the slaves. As panic swells, the United States government provides important military support. And that support is ensured by slaveholder power. Don't forget that slavery is protected not only by the slaveholder, not, not only by the local militia or the state militia, but also by the full force of the military might of the United States of America. Except for that, slavery would not have been possible in the South. 
As the hunt for Nat Turner and his men continues, 800 U.S. troops joined 2,000 local militiamen. Within a week, the rebellion is squashed. More than 50 rebels are captured. Nearly 60 white men, women, and children have been killed. The violence doesn't fully subside until Nat Turner is captured two months later on October 31st, not by a patrol or slave catcher, but by a farmer, by accident. Turner is tried, hanged, and skinned. In all, the state executes 55 black people for conspiring with Turner. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 22nd, 2016. So I have been told we started with a short audio segment uh, on Nat Turner uh, because this week, Edward Baptist, the half has never been told, our seventh study session. Uh, we will pick up almost at the very beginning on the slave rebellion in Virginia, 1831, with Nat Turner, almost right where we pick up at. Uh, we are in chapter six uh, for folks who are following along. We're doing a really short introduction today just so that we can get started, uh, have ample time for folks to give comments uh, so we can cover as much material as possible in addition uh, to getting all this great information on Nat Turner. Uh, towards the latter portion of the section, there will be a lot of great commentary on Area 8, sexual intercourse, and the routine rape that we have been mentioning. That's going to be talked about in explicit detail uh, coming up in Chapter 7. So without further ado, we will get started. Edward Baptist, Suspected Racist, his book, The Half, has never been told. We're in Chapter 6. This is the context of white supremacy. Enslaved people, however, believed otherwise. In 1821, one Georgia slave wrote a letter to a white preacher. If I understand the white people, he wrote, they are praying for more religion in the world. Well then, if God sent you to preach to sinners, did he direct you to keep your face to the white people constantly, or is it because they give you money? We are carried to market and sold to the highest bidder, and whites never once inquire whether you are sold to a heathen or a Christian. Yet enslaved people continued to flock to churches, even if ministers turned their backs on them, and to hold their own religious meetings as well. For in the story of Jesus, believers found kinship and a promise. Jesus was a God made mortal, a wrongly captured man who endured torture and violent death. Forced migrants already knew what it was like to journey into a grave. But the story told them that Jesus had risen from his tomb and returned to tell the captives of a new kingdom whose gate he had opened. So now one understands how that teenaged girl, the one interviewed as an old woman, had come to be in a Tennessee prayer meeting. She was agonizing over her future, specifically over her inability to protect her first child, who had just been born from violence, hunger, and separation. And one understands why, when the girl heard a voice no one else could hear and rose up from her knees in wonder, her own mother rushed to her side to guide her to the edge. Pray on, daughter, she remembered the older woman telling her. For if the master has started to working with you, he will not stop until he has freed your soul. 
The mother had already traveled this road, and she pushed her fearful daughter against all the impending crucifixion she'd have to survive. It wasn't long, the daughter remembered, before, collapsing to the ground, I died. She fell into an abyss, but as the young woman plunged, a different voice, a new one, breathed in her ear. It told her that the thefts in her own life and her own transcendence of them mattered. Both, it told her, were part of the greatest drama in creation, and it told her not to hide from the pain and the fear, but to plunge into her own desolated emotions and powerless complicity, for the voice specifically said, you must die and go to hell, or she could not live again. She twitched and was fully in the dream. She found herself walking down the slave trail. People who survived the southwestern daylight fields called the acres of cotton hell without fires for the sad zombies and evil demons that stalked in them. But in the perpetual night on each side of this road, she could see the fires clearly. Flames raged unceasing in the cotton and logs and stumps. Beside her staggered stolen people, people lost in their chains, people who did not know their own names. She saw babies left on the ground by mothers. She heard mothers whose screams sounded like wounded animals. The coffle she was in came to the forks in the road. A little man stood there. He beckoned her to follow him up a narrow path. Because this was a dream, a vision, somehow she had come unlinked from the coffle, so follow him she did. She gasped for breath, lagging as she struggled up the path's dizzying switchbacks. So the man called down a great multitude of angels and told them to sing to her as she climbed. Mama, Mama, you must help carry the world, they chanted. What would become of her baby, what would become of her, she could not know. Somehow she had to care for, instruct, defend her child against forces too heavy to fight. She had a whole world to carry. Then the angels began to sing her name. They sang her weary legs to the top of the stairs, where the last step emptied upon a high courtyard. There she stood, and somehow she knew she stood before God. A disembodied voice rang out. How did she come? Ranks of spirits flickered into sight, and they echoed the question in song. In her waking life, not even her mother knew how hard her path had been. But a second voice did know. It said what she couldn't. She came through hard trials with the hellhounds on her trail. She realized that voice had breathed in her ear all along. Mary and Martha, Jesus' helpers, came forward, clothed her with a new robe, and the first voice said, You are born of God. My son delivered your soul from hell, and you must go and help carry the world. She awoke. She was alive. She believed that the most powerful forces in the universe could name the pains and fears that even she could not. These forces recognized her. From them, she was not stolen. All she had to do in return for this gift was to carry the whole world. The experience of spiritual death and rebirth reassured converted slaves that they had a value and a responsibility that went far beyond the number of dollars one could sell for, of pounds one could pick, or of babies one could bear for the market. They spoke of their own transformed spirits as being set free from the fear that their enslavers were, in the end, their final judges.
I heard a voice speak to me, said William Webb. From that time, I lost all fear of men on this earth. No matter how vigorously white preachers argued that conversion made slaves more docile, enslavers worried that freedom from fear might launch other quests for change. True, in the New Testament, as 19th century Christians often heard it, the Spirit gave redemption from sin and commanded forgiveness. Many Christian slaves believed that God had commanded them to put violent vengeance aside, if only for their own soul's sake. But following the command to forgive one's enemies was a difficult task. A lifetime job, said one ex-slave. I don't care how long God lets me live, it will still be a hard job. And forgiveness did not mean that enslaved people believed that the thieving powers of this world would never bow, that the lowest would not one day be the highest, or that their kidnappers would never face judgment. Him claiming to be a Christian. Well, I reckon he's found out something about slave driving by now, mused ex-slave Robert Falls about his now-dead former owner, whom he believed was toiling on Satan's labor camp. The good Lord has to get his work in sometime. But there was another text available. In some books of the Old Testament, the Spirit kindled not forgiveness, but the uncompromising fire of holy warriors like Samson or Saul, commanding them to slay all the Lord's enemies down to the last man, woman, and child. And many enslaved migrants dreamed of that. The idea of a revolution in the conditions of the whites and the blacks is the cornerstone of the religion of the latter, recall Charles Ball of conversations among captives of Wade Hampton. Heaven will be no heaven, to the average slave, Ball said, if he is not to be avenged of his enemies. Perhaps God demanded that his followers start to get his work in, even if avengers lost their lives in the process. That impulse found fertile soil in Southampton County, Virginia, and Old Tobacco County, where the accelerated growth of slavery carved deep scars in the 1820s. John Brown, born there around 1818, the year Francis Reeves took his first coffle from Southampton to Alabama, belonged to an old white woman. She used to call us children up to the big house every morning and give us a dose of garlic and rue to keep us wholesome, as she said, and make us grow likely for market. Then she would make us run around a great sycamore tree in the yard, and if we did not run fast enough to please her, she used to make us nimbler by laying about us with a cowhide. Throughout the 1820s, the new national slave market drained people like Brown from Southampton. Forty-eight of them, for instance, passed through the hands of New Orleans slave traders between 1829 and early 1831. In Southampton, the enslaved despaired over the increasing destabilization of their temporal lives, and whites tried to extend their control over African Americans' spiritual lives. In 1826, an enslaved Southampton lay preacher named Nat Turner had told a white man named Ethelred Brantley of his religious visions. Brantley believed that Turner's touch cured him of a skin disorder. The two decided they wanted Turner to baptize Brantley at a local Methodist church, but the white church hierarchy would not let Turner perform the ritual. So Turner and Brantley went down to the river, where Turner baptized him. A group of whites gathered and reviled us, so the preacher later put it. By 1828, Nat Turner had stopped believing that he should leave vengeance in God's hands. Instead, he saw visions that he thought demanded violence. White people and black people fighting in the sky, blood condensing like dew on the corn, 
a voice like thunder telling him, Such is your luck, such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth, you must surely bear it. Turner retreated into his wilderness. He later said, speaking to a local Southampton lawyer named Thomas R. Gray, who recorded Turner's words and published them as The Confessions of Nat Turner, I heard a loud noise in the heavens, and the Spirit instantly appeared to me and said, The serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For the time was fast approaching when the first should be last and the last should be first. With his orders clear, Turner gathered a small group of angry, broken men into his confidence and waited for another sign. Then, in early 1831, a total eclipse blocked out the sun. The first headlines did not reach New Orleans until September 1831. But from there, the news spread quickly up the river veins of the slave frontier's network of steamboats and cotton landings. In Southampton County, on August 22, insurgent slaves had begun killing whites. Almost 60 had been slaughtered in a two-day rampage across Southampton. They included a baby in a crib and ten children in a log cabin school. Then masses of white troops descended on Southampton and crushed the revolt. They executed, through shootings, beheadings, and torture, about 50 African Americans, many of whom had not participated in the rebellion. Turner himself was captured two months later, then tried, convicted, and hanged, but not before dictating his confessions to Gray. Southwestern whites suddenly realized that their system had inhaled tens of thousands of people who had been stolen from Southampton and similar counties that had been devastated by the professional slave trade over the past decade. Alabama's governor activated the state militia. The newspapers in New Orleans suppressed reporting of the rebellion until authorities could collect enough weapons to defeat copycat attacks, but word still got out. In Louisiana's West Feliciana Parish, a white widow heard a rumor that the slaves on a nearby labor camp had armed themselves and claimed their liberty. She instantly started screaming and crying as loud as she could, a calmer neighbor recorded in her diary. The widow demanded that a male neighbor go find out what was happening. But instead, he called out the members of the local militia, who assembled and marched to the alleged epicenter. There they found the overseer and the Negroes very busy at gathering the crops, picking cotton, as peaceable as lambs. The proper officers of the state should take measures to prevent the importation of slaves from the infected section of the country, wrote the New Orleans Bee. The editor had stopped trusting certificate laws to filter the old state's most rebellious enslaved people from the stream of the slave trade. Despite opposition from ambitious cotton and sugar entrepreneurs, an emergency session of the state legislature banned the slave trade. Reading the writing on the wall, traders rushed in 774 more slaves before the special session ended. The Alabama legislature also raced into session and prohibited the trade. The next spring, Mississippi held a constitutional convention. There were so many enslaved migrants around booming Natchez, said planter banker Stephen Duncan, that we will one day have our throats cut in this country. Elitist representatives from the Natchez area and delegates from the poor white Piney Woods formed an unusual alliance and incorporated a slave trade prohibition in the new constitution. Of course, buyers and sellers immediately began to poke loopholes in the slave trade prohibitions. 
buyers traveled to the Chesapeake. Traders filled out declarations swearing that the slaves they were transporting were for their own use only. Legislators from the newer cotton counties in Mississippi, who still wanted slaves, blocked implementation of that state's constitutional ban, so the biggest traders moved their headquarters from New Orleans to the Forks in the Road market just north of Natchez. But back east, Virginia, the site of the rebellion and still the home of the South's largest slave population, had called a state constitutional convention to consider emancipation. In the course of the deliberations, Thomas Jefferson's grandson, Thomas Randolph, proposed a statewide referendum of white voters on whether Virginia should initiate gradual emancipation. Randolph's plan would have made all slaves born after July 4, 1840, into state property upon adulthood. Virginia would then hire out these slaves, saving the wages to pay, ultimately, for the expenses involved in exiling them beyond the limits of the United States. Under this plan, many Afro-Virginians would have still been enslaved in the early 20th century, although Randolph assumed that before then, most enslavers would cash out by selling them south. Randolph was proposing to revive his grandfather's dream, the exile of Virginia's slave population and the creation of an all-white Old Dominion. Many, such as fellow delegate Thomas Marshall, son of John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835, supported Randolph's proposal, believing that slavery was ruinous to whites. The industrious population of non-slaveholding whites was emigrating in order to flee a state whose biggest business was raising people for the southwestern market. And if they continued, Marshall predicted, invoking the fate of Saint-Domingue whites, the whole country of Virginia will be inundated by one black wave, with a few white faces here and there floating on the surface. Yet other delegates warned that the state's entire economy depended on the price point of a single commodity, that of hands at New Orleans. If the Randolph plan passed, Virginia enslavers would rush to sell their human property south at one time, and the price would plummet. Slave owners were vested in the slave market, and most of them wanted the government to defend and expand their right to nearly unfettered use of their property, not to limit it. The Virginia Convention rejected Randolph and approved the status quo, though it added new limits on slave literacy and on free black life. Over the next three years, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Maryland imposed similar restrictions. Enslavers had already imposed the like in the southwestern states. Limits on literacy and on contact with free blacks aimed to restrict access to ideas about freedom. Pro-slavery politicians blamed the first appearance of Garrison's Liberator in January 1831 for Nat Turner's decision later that year to bathe Southampton County in white folks' blood. The Georgia legislature even offered a $5,000 reward for Garrison's apprehension. But enslavers also feared that African-American Christianity itself might generate danger from within. Governor John Floyd of Virginia wrote that every black preacher east of the Blue Ridge had known about Turner's plot. Misguided white piety had permitted large assemblages of Negroes at which black preachers had allegedly read out the incendiary publications of Walker and Garrison. An Alabama newspaper warned of shrewd, cunning slave preachers. 
Should revolt break out in the southwestern region, some crispy-haired prophet, some pretender to inspiration, will be the ringleader as well as the inspiration of that plot. By feigning communication from heaven, he will rouse the fanaticism of his brethren, and they will be prepared for any work, no matter how desolating and murderous. The southwestern enslaver politicians decided to put an end to independent black Christianity. Mobile, Alabama, banned gatherings, including religious ones, of more than three slaves. The punishment for violation was 20 stripes on the back. The local newspaper wrote, The managers of the Mobile Sunday School have decided that hereafter no colored person will be received for instruction who does not bring written permission to that effect from the owner. The Mississippi State Legislature made it illegal for any slave, free Negro, or mulatto to exercise the function of a minister of the gospel. All religious practice, aside from individual prayer, would now be kept under the eyes of enslavers and their henchmen, which is what evangelical ministers now volunteer to be. White ministers eagerly promised that they would henceforth work harder than ever to make Christianity into a tool that would help enslavers govern their society. With independent black preaching now illegal in most places, white Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians offered two legal religious options to the enslaved. The first one was to affiliate with white churches. There, African Americans could look forward to unequal status and discipline. In bigger churches, they'd sit in the upstairs gallery. In the long church that Annie Stanton attended in the Alabama woods, she actually had to sit outside the door with her fellow slaves on benches. After the white preacher's sermon was done, a black preacher would come out and talk to them while whites supervised. The second strategy was the creation of slave missions. White preachers, funded and regulated by white denominations, would be sent to preach to black congregations. The pro-slavery sermons that slave missions delivered were the South's interior version of the arguments that were to be, beginning in the 1830s, increasingly projected at the region's exterior critics. Ministers developed a theological argument that claimed that Christianity justified slavery. They leaned on the Apostle Paul with his admonition to servants to obey their masters. Increasingly, they also argued that a holistic view of the Bible showed that slavery was not sinful. In fact, they said, God had ordained that the Israelites, and white people in general, could enslave allegedly inferior Hamitic peoples, supposedly descended from Ham, one of Noah's sons, such as Africans, so long as they treated the latter with paternalistic goodness. In this view, slavery's critics were willfully refusing to read the Bible closely enough to recognize that slavery was God-ordained. Abolition doctrines were merely attempts to supplant the Word of God with individual will. And this went for potential Southern critics as well as Northern ones. James Smiley, a prominent Presbyterian minister from Mississippi, and by 1840 the captor of 30 men, women, and children, argued in 1836 that a slaveholder whose conscience is guided, not by the word of God, but by the doctrines of men, that is, by the anxiety that anti-slavery Christians might have a point, is often suffering the lashes of a guilty conscience. But he should not suffer. God had created some people unfit for freedom. Slavery was God's will. To worry about slavery was to doubt God. To oppose it was heresy. By 1835, Israel Campbell, 
who had been transported from Kentucky to the cotton system of Mississippi, had become a first-rate hand and more. He drove a work gang on a slave labor camp near the little crossroads town of Mount Vernon. Campbell had been granted as much status as any white Mississippian was willing to give him. Yet one night, when someone pounding on his cabin door jolted him out of sleep, he woke up to discover how little protection he had. Stumbling out of bed, he unlatched the door and tumbled backward as two white men shoved their way in. One grabbed Campbell by the collar and pulled his throat toward the point of a bowie knife. What do you know about Dr. Cotton's scrape? The man growled. Nothing at all, sir, stammered Campbell. That was true, but he did know who Dr. Cotton was, and that had him shaking. Cotton was a white man who had come from up north to practice as a steam doctor, a Thompsonian physician who claimed he could treat many illnesses and complaints by having the patients inhale large quantities of steam and small quantities of medicine. Though Thompsonian homeopathy was less likely to kill the patient than the massive chemical doses prescribed in those days by traditional physicians, steam doctors were thought of as itinerants from society's fringe. And somehow, Cotton had given the impression that he was overly friendly with local African Americans. Emphasizing their questioning with a blade pressed against Campbell's throat, these men told him that, Dr. Cotton and some mean white men and a great many of the Negroes were laying plans to rise and kill off the white people and free the Negroes. Then they said that they knew Campbell had recently attended a secret illegal prayer session in the woods led by Harris's old Dave, the Negro preacher. Clearly, they suspected that Campbell was also involved in the alleged plot. How long had he stayed? Did he know if slaves had talked about getting free and killing the white people? Campbell desperately denied hearing anything of the sort. Somehow, he convinced the interrogators that he had nothing to do with a conspiracy. The knife moved away from his throat. The men offered him a convivial shot from their stoneware jug. Campbell's hand shook as he raised the brandy to his lips. It burned going down, like the drinks auctioneers gave men and women on the block. But the men watched with approval as he took their cup. Campbell wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. They warned him that anyone connected with the plot would be shot, and then they clattered off in the night. Campbell watched from the doorway as they rode away. He knew that the excitement and fear he'd seen mingled in their eyes was going to condemn some people to death before the sun rose. If there was a plot, all Campbell knew about it could probably be inferred from the tales he and his peers had told each other about their own stolen lives. The Whites had their own feared storyline, which had been seared into their brains long before Southampton. To stop that one from coming to pass, all around the neighborhood that evening, groups of white men were dragging slaves out of cabins and questioning them. In terror, some charged others with crimes that never existed. When the night was over, when enough victims had been rounded up, the vigilantes, most of whom were local planters, began to hang the condemned in Mount Vernon. For two days, they dropped and strangled black preachers and worshippers from a pole between two high, Y-shaped posts. They also strung up a few white men who, like Dr. Cotton, had crossed a racial barrier. Afterward, the vigilantes came back and got Campbell. This time, they only wanted him to wait tables at a banquet, where the planters of the area praised themselves for saving Mississippi from destruction. Walking home the morning after the party, Campbell saw the heads of hanged black preachers impaled on roadside stakes. 
and that was almost the last time Campbell saw old Dave and his brothers. But not quite. He came face to face with them again once that fall. Not long before Campbell's owner moved his slaves yet again, this time to Tennessee, Campbell went into the little apothecary shop that served as Mount Vernon's pharmacy. And there he saw the grinning skulls of Dave and his apostles displayed on its shelves. Israel Campbell had been seeking God for a long time. But in Mississippi, there were so many drawbacks that he could not make my peace with God, he later said. Indeed, religious seeking had almost made him one of white Mississippi's bleached trophies. But Campbell was still drawn to chase the same God who didn't intervene when white people set the buzzard's table at Mount Vernon. In Tennessee, Campbell tried again. He and his wife attended every nearby religious meeting. Frenetically, he sneaked off twice a day to a praying ground he had cleared at a secret place deep in the woods. On his knees, he battled his fear that he was no more than chalk dust in someone else's hands. Then, late in the fall, a week of frantic cotton-picking earned the slaves of the devout a short break in the harvest. A few days' time to coincide with a nearby Methodist camp meeting, where white preachers led and black exhorters were restricted to warming up the crowd and praying with individual seekers. Israel Campbell and his wife attended. For three days, they begged on their knees for the kind of ecstatic transformation they saw people having all around them. Finally, on the fourth night, Israel's wife stood up and began to shout with the other new converts. Campbell had seen others who shouted in ecstasy. He had heard others say that they felt God's breath in their lungs. What was left of some of them gaped at customers in the apothecary shop. It was hard to make peace with that. There were also the bleeding wounds that God had permitted wrongdoers to blast in his own life. Despite all his mother's prayers, something, whether God or the universe or fate, had torn Israel from her, strapped a young man who had once been an infant at her breast into the leather of the whipping machine. Mississippi Baptists claimed that dark, mysterious dispensations excused white Christians' complicity in slavery's outrages. But lives that were stolen. This was a crime, not a mystery to be accepted on faith. Perhaps even God was complicit. Israel fell on his knees, almost alone. An old black preacher named Reeves stood behind his shoulder. Reeves had survived six weeks of marching in shackles. He had survived white folks' fear of him. He was thin, made of knots of starved, scarred muscle, draped in rags. He held his face, carved with lines dark from 15,000 days under the sunshine, utterly still. As Campbell prayed, Reeves looked straight ahead, impassive as a king. At last, some moment only he could judge arrived. He bent down and breathed into Israel's ear. Pray on, young brother. 7. Seed, 1829-1837 Springtime. The field spreads open. Suddenly it feels as if the insects have always been buzzing here, as if gray January never was. Green crusts the tree branches, the rain falls, the ground drinks the rain, the world shines like a sun. The entrepreneur looks out at the fields from the new porch on his cabin, talking. His employee listens, then walks over, picks up a clod of dirt, smells it, maybe tastes it, 
puts it down. The next day it rains hard in the morning, but when it stops, the men bring the mules and the plows out. The spongy earth oozes into the hollows, sucking the metal plow points. Fuck this mud, the men mutter. Fuck, from an old English word meaning to strike, to beat. Before that, in even older language, to plow, to tear open. The seeds are waiting, in the sack in the shed, or maybe safe under the entrepreneur's high bed, the bed where he fucks his wife, bed brought by wagon from the landing, bed bought with last year's crop. Maybe he didn't bring his wife. Maybe the sack is under the bed where he fucks the 16-year-old light-skinned girl from Maryland, also bought with last year's crop. Maybe she is the same girl who washes the bloodstains from the sheets in the morning, who carries the chamber pot to the woods, who turns it over, brings it back empty, sets it by his side of the bed, bumps her toe on the bulging sack full of tiny seeds. Her toe feels their caress through cotton bagging sewn up with cotton thread. 100,000 DNA packets, each one encoding gossipium hirsutum. 100,000 cotton seeds, oily against each other, warm like Mexico's Tehuacan Valley, where 5,000 years ago Indian women tamed these seeds' ancestors. Or to plant. It is the next dry day. The employee brings out the bag. He cuts it open with his long knife, a double handful into her new apron. She lines up barefoot in the field with the rest. One hand pinches apron into pocket. One hand holds seed between thumb and forefinger. The next woman on drags a hoe up the row, trenching the broken dirt. Her turn now. She drops a seed, rakes damp black dirt over it with her naked left heel, presses the ball of her foot down to settle the seed in the dirt. She moves a few inches up the row. Underneath, all is dark. The layers of muck and humus have already quickened with their own yearly cycle. They hum the rhythms of their local history of biological alliances. The outsider seed sits quiet as a tick. In its hull, double helixes lie in suspended animation. The next day, the rain falls. Water molecules leach through the seed coat. The helixes awaken. They twist, shudder, break apart, draw more molecules to their open spaces, building their own mirrors. From them march streams of chemical messengers, orders that compel whole cells to stretch and split into twins. The embryo plant bulges. It shatters the seed hull from within and forces the stem up toward unseen light. Squatting in the creek, the girl washes herself frantically. She does not know that if the planter's seed is motile enough, it has already journeyed up into her hours ago, questing for her own. If this is her time, they will meet. The green shoot breaches the surface. Tiny pores gasp carbon dioxide, and cell membranes gulp in the life-sustaining molecules. The first rounds of photosynthesis begin. Triumphantly, the erecting stem spreads two cotyledons, baby leaves that all winter long have been tucked like arms on a fetus. All across the field, thousands of other shoots are doing exactly the same thing. Now they can consume Mississippi's long arcs of sunlight, heavy rains, and the incredible chocolate soil that river and forest built. The local ecosystem struggles against this invader, but the cotton plant has plow and hoe as its allies and it is rammed into this dirt by command of desires equipped with yet more powerful tools, hands that will keep these little plants clear of weeds for four months, 
For the four after, they will dominate this field, shading out every other plant that challenges their possession, making this field a grid of revenue on which only one species lives. By mid-August, they will explode into an unnatural whitescape that lasts until winter falls or picking finishes. Yet whether the seed seed will live on is an open question. Its DNA codes for a life cycle in which it grows into a tree that lives many years in a tropical climate. Here, though, this plant dies with the first winter frost. By that time, most of its seed will have been picked with the cotton bowls, separated by the gin, and discarded. Already in the 1830s, many planters buy each year's seed from breeders who create new varieties and promise great yield. The white entrepreneur will risk many things, but not the chance that this hybrid kernel's own seed will fail to run true and leave his production anemic in a year of high prices. This tree turned into a bush, in short, is fucked. So too is the soil. When the enslaved men broke it open for the entrepreneur, he fucked this dirt with them as his tool. He fucked this field. He might fuck their wives out in the woods, or in the corn when it is high, or their daughter in the kitchen. Then the next new girl he buys at New Orleans. But he fucks the men, too. He plants in all his hands the seeds of his dreams. In fact, he plants them all, men and women, in this place, just as he plants those seeds. Plants, ecosystems, people, strain to live their lives according to their own codes, but he twists their efforts into helixes of his own design. He takes their product, keeps it for himself. He breaks open the skin on their backs with his fucking lash, striking their lives with his power, marking them and their world with his desire. So even as the cotton plant's internal programming raised two little leaves to flutter in the April breeze off the Mississippi River, entrepreneurs' desires dominated it. In a broader sense, much of this story about the expansion of slavery and how it shaped the lives of black folks and the wider world is driven by the white men who tried to impose their codes on everything around them. These codes included, above all, their ideas about what made them men. White men's code of masculinity shaped all lives on slavery's frontier, shaped the costs of being black, the benefits of being white, the costs of being female. White men used the code as both weapon and motivator against each other in battles for political equality and access to the economic benefits of slavery. And the seeds sowed by entrepreneurs sprouted in ways both cultivated and unforeseen into the two-party political system emergent in the 1830s, the economic boom that shaped the years from 1829 to 1837, and ultimately the Civil War, which the boom's aftermath planted. By the time 1837 came, all would be different. National politics, slavery's economic status, the South's relationship to the rest of the United States, even how enslavers felt about slavery. Above all, this decade, perhaps the most pivotal in American history, unraveled and re-knit, and scattered, and chopped short, and harvested, and broke, and consumed the lives of millions of enslaved people. The new crop spread far in space and in time, but to understand the DNA of the white men who planted it, one must look back to the old states where it was first synthesized. In an early 1832 letter to his business partner, North Carolina-based slave trader Tyre Glenn coined a verb that cut straight to that essence. As an aside from an otherwise ordinary discussion of trafficking in humans, 
He noted that, because of a recent bill in the General Assembly, potterizing now carries the punishment of death. Potterizing was a neologism. It evoked the recent case of Bob Potter, as Glenn called him. Robert Potter had been born around 1800 into a poor family in Granville County, North Carolina. In the Granville of Potter's childhood, an old tobacco district with worn-out fields and an entrenched planter oligarchy, there was no economic mobility except by geographic migration. Indeed, while poor white men like his father were free, and white, they lacked key rights that distinguished the independent from the dependent. North Carolina's constitution, for instance, excluded most white men who did not own property from voting for the state legislature. Restricted voting perpetuated oligarchy. Planter legislators levied taxes on all to build infrastructure that carried little but planters' crops to market, established state banks that lent only to the wealthy, and created a state university that educated only planters' sons. Yet as a boy, Potter always stood out from Granville County's other second-class white citizens. A local gentleman took an interest in him, granting him unusual favors, a free classical education from his son's tutor, and later, appointment as a midshipman in the U.S. Navy. The kinds of favors showered on Potter could easily co-opt a lower-class white man. Look at Henry Clay, another social climber. Born the son of a small Virginia slave owner, Clay moved to Kentucky and became the best rich man's lawyer in the land speculation game. Days after his first arrival in Congress, awed colleagues made Clay Speaker of the House. Later, he became a senator, secretary of state, and presidential candidate. Above all, Clay was the architect of the American system of economic development. Development-minded elites loved his ideas for domestic markets, support for banks, and government funding of infrastructure projects. But many less wealthy white men disliked the idea of the American system, fearing it shed benefits unequally. Even as they moved southwest, it seemed to them that the political system was widening the gulf between rich and poor. Although by the 1820s all white men in the new states could vote, except in Louisiana and Mississippi, rich men's concerns still set the political agenda. Mississippi's legislature, for instance, chartered the state's Planters Bank in 1830, subsidizing it with $2 million of taxpayers' money. Potter spent his teenage years at sea, learning how to turn charisma into practical leadership. But when he returned to Granville in 1821, he found that things there were as they'd been when he'd left for the sea a decade before. In the zero-sum world of the decaying Southeast, sustained by slave trade remittances, Potter immediately ran into limits intended to remind him that he should defer to his betters. In 1824, Potter ran for the state legislature, but elite factions conspired to ensure victory for old money planter Jesse Bynum. The furious Potter challenged Bynum to a duel. The victor declined, for Potter was no gentleman. Potter ambushed Bynum and cracked his skull with a stick. In Western Europe, from the 15th century to the start of the 20th, the homicide rate plummeted from 41 per 100,000 to 1.4. In Western societies, the state claimed a monopoly on violence, and the law became the legally and culturally approved way to settle individual disputes. But the great outlier in this picture was the South. Even leaving aside the unmeasured violence committed against the enslaved, 
At the beginning of the 19th century, the white-on-white homicide rate in Virginia was around 9 per 100,000, eight times that of New Hampshire. At the most basic level, white people fought and killed each other in the old slaveholding states to prove that they were not slaves. Enslaved men were not allowed to defend their pride, their manhood, or anything else. They had to endure the penetration of their skin, their lives, their families. Therefore, the best way to insult a white man was to treat him like a black man, as if he could not strike back. And the best way to disprove that was to strike back. In Robert Potter's North Carolina, courts often denied poor white men that right. There was much talk of charging Potter for assault and battery on Bynum. The court may have had the discretion to punish him with a slap on the wrist, giving him a sentence like Austin Woolfolk's $1 fine for beating up Quaker editor Benjamin Lundy, or may have done something much harsher and more humiliating. Before any court case arose, it was time for the next legislative elections. Potter and Bynum met once more in electoral combat. This time, Potter won the majority of the county's votes. Granville's small farmers, desperately trying to hang on to their property, and with it their status as voting citizens, appreciated his combative unwillingness to accept the insults of privilege. They gave him the right to strike back, for he punched for them. As soon as he joined the legislature, Potter began to fire off impatient proposals that directly challenged wealthy slaveholders' grip on North Carolina. His first effort was an attempt to create a new state university, what he called a political college. This would train young men to be leaders, but would accept no student from a family whose property was valued at more than $1,000. One hundred of these young men, one hundred Robert Potters, would graduate every year. His fellow legislators, educated at the State University in Chapel Hill, were shocked at the attempt to overturn their power and blocked his proposals. Potter then turned to the state-chartered banks, charging that they foreclosed on small farmers even as they rolled over debts for wealthy men. Potter's constituents, or most of them, liked his initiatives. In 1828, they elected him to Congress, and again in 1830. But during the summer of 1831, as he visited home between congressional sessions, things took a strange turn. Potter became convinced that his wife had committed adultery with both a Methodist minister and a 17-year-old neighbor from a wealthy family. On August 28, 1831, Potter kidnapped both of those men. He took them out into the woods. Then he castrated them. Then he released them. Within a day, Potter had been captured. He was then locked in a cell at Oxford, the county seat. But from behind bars, as he awaited trial, Potter penned a defense of his actions. His appeal was, he said, an effort as a man, as a member of society, to explain himself to the world, but especially to you, my constituents. He justified his castration of two white men, honored members of their society, as self-defense. They had tried to unman him first, stabbing me most vitally. They had hurt me beyond all cure. They had polluted the very sanctuary of my soul. Their cuckolding left him the most degraded man in Granville, and he now felt that I could no longer maintain my place among men. He had been subjected to the same humiliation that enslaved men had to endure. The only possible solution was to wipe off the disgrace that had been put upon me with the blood of those who had fixed it there. 
Like a proper gentleman who shot someone in a duel to erase an insult, Potter believed that only an act of greater violence than what had been committed against him would erase the unmanning mark. Rich men were almost never prosecuted for dueling. Poor men involved in less deadly fights could face long jail terms. But Potter's crime wasn't specifically listed on the law books, and the most serious charge that the local courts could find with which to charge him was maiming, with a maximum penalty of two years' imprisonment. This was why the state legislature passed a new law punishing future castrations of white men with execution. Two years was a long time to sit in a jail cell, however, and while he was in there, the legislature granted his wife a divorce. It also allowed her to change the last name of their two children. The law now said that Potter was not a father and his children were not his seed. In that way, too, he was like a slave. Still, the planters of northeastern North Carolina had not heard the name Potter for the final time. After his 1834 release, Potter ran again for the state legislature. He won a contest marred with violence, which Granville County remembered as the Potter War. But the legislature soon contrived a bogus charge of cheating at gambling and expelled him. This time, Potter obliged his opponents and left. Like countless other troublemakers, Potter headed first for New Orleans. There, he would plant anew. Yet, it was not certain that white men who came from Potter's origins would find escape on the frontier from the constricting economic, social, and political inequality of the old states. And if most of them had more ordinary gifts, many of them were still Bob Potters in their own way. This is one reason why, from the earliest days, violent conflicts over status, reputation, and pride of membership, access, and recognition were even more common on slavery's frontiers than in the older slave states. In the cotton counties of middle Georgia in 1800, for instance, the homicide level was approximately 45 for 100,000 whites, five times that of Virginia. Three decades later, the rate in Florida's cotton districts was 70 per 100,000, 50 times the northeastern rate. One North Carolina migrant wrote back home that in his new Alabama community, no man is safe from violence unless a weapon is conspicuously displayed on his person. In North Carolina, he continued, it is considered disreputable to carry a dirk or a pistol, but in Alabama, it is considered singularity and imprudence to be without one. In fact, nine persons in ten you will see with the dirk handle projecting from their bosoms. When pistols and dirks weren't handy, white men used anything and everything else to try to intimidate, humiliate, and kill each other. Teeth, rocks, nails, cowhide whips, canes, pieces of lumber. Letters from the frontier are riddled with shootings, stabbings, cuttings, gougings, horse whippings, and other brutal assaults on everyone who had the misfortune to meet them. So-and-so had his thumb cut off in consequence of a bite by Bob Hutchins at the races. He had the impudence to call my wife and mother whores, and I beat him. They will hardly hang a man here for willful murder, and they do not regard taking the life of a man any more than I would a snake. He coughed up a buckshot. There were some angry words out in the yard, then Dudley shot Rowan in the right side. The woods were searched, and the body of a man was found with two bullet holes in the forehead, and the whole of the hind part of his skull stove in. They're mighty free with pistols down there, an old escaped slave told an audience in 1842. 
If a man don't resent anything that's put upon him, they call him pokeasy. The way white men say it, being pokeasy was for men toiling in the field, and for the women out there too. People either forced or willing to be the helpless target. Dirks, pistols, and physical assault asserted that one was unpokeable. Little boys in the southwestern towns learned to fight for their honor as soon as they could walk. Catch him down, said a Florida father watching his son fight another boy. Then bite him, chaw off his lip, or else you'll never be a man. A man must be ready to fight on almost any day, from cradle to grave. And old men dying of alcoholism scrambled frantically under their beds for stashed revolvers to shoot the phantoms that still rushed toward them. Wealthy men, well-positioned to grab the right-handed rewards generated by ever-growing productivity in the cotton fields, committed more than their share of frontier violence. But also characteristic was the type of Alabama employer-employee conflict that John Pelham described to his North Carolina uncle in 1833. I had a falling out with Mr. Bynum. I was not quite as submissive as he would wish an overseer. He threatened to cane me. He has three grown sons. I told him the whole family could not do that and dared them to try it. Bynum wanted deference, but Pelham refused to be submissive. He was an employee, but also, he asserted, an equal. You don't cane an equal. You cane someone to prove that they are not your equal. Pelham made Bynum back down, and now the rich man had to find another overseer. Meanwhile, Pelham found someone willing to give him credit, to believe his claim to status. I had money and friends, and determined to alter my business, I went to Florence and bought me a good assortment of groceries and brought them to this place where I find I am doing a good business. In personal encounters, less wealthy white men who moved to the new states became increasingly confrontational toward those who dared to act like their betters. Tens of thousands of Pelhams, just like the original Potter, also wanted to force political recognition of their equality. When property-owning citizens in South Carolina and Kentucky decided in the 1790s to expand the franchise to all adult white men, regardless of their property-owning status, they probably assumed that educated, wealthy men from the upper class would still hold all offices and set the agenda of politics. This is essentially what happened at first. Many successful frontier politicians were like George Poindexter, he arrived in Mississippi from Virginia in the first decade of the 19th century and became the author of Mississippi's first legal code and the Natchez River County elite's political champion. The Natchez nabobs were few in number, but they controlled the state legislature, and so they made Poindexter their U.S. senator. Yet, by the time Poindexter's star was reaching its zenith, the impact of poor white migrants from the old states on frontier elections began to change the political game. The 1832 Mississippi State Constitution removed the last few restrictions on white male voting. The broadened electorate brought in a state legislature that told Poindexter to cast his Senate votes against banking policies that benefited his cronies. He responded with the claim that the common voter could not tell him what to do, if the people of Mississippi desire to be represented in the national legislature by a mere machine, to be wielded by the arm of popular power, they have made an unfortunate selection in me. 
Elite politicians also tried to distract attention from policy programs that served oligarchic factions by painting their opponents as pokeesies, undeserving of voters' respect. Florida Territorial Governor Richard K. Call, leader of a clique of land speculators, described his campaign strategy as riding his opponent with a stiffer bit and a ranker row than he had been ridden before, verbally humiliating him and threatening violence until the opponent backed down, tail between legs. Political honor violence could be as meaningful to voters as policy programs and oratory. Yet new voters who built their log cabins on the poor land far from the rivers did not want their representative to tell them he wasn't going to listen to them. Sometimes voters could be as brutal with their rebukes as the Georgia constituent who assassinated a Yazoo man state senator for giving away his birthright of land yet to be stolen from the creeks. Given the option, poor white men preferred politicians like Franklin Plummer. Plummer arrived in Mississippi with no more money than Poindexter, settling in the hard, scrabble, piney woods of the state's southeast, rather than Natchez. When he decided to run for Congress in 1829, the state's ruling factions considered it a great piece of impertinence, as a fellow politico from those days later recalled. The Natchez machine sent notorious duelists to heckle him during speeches, seeking to humiliate him as an unmanly coward. Plummer coolly took the stump and routed them with clever mockery. His ability to connect with the common voter made him virtually invincible. During one campaign election, Plummer traveled the district in company with a competitor, and one night the two of them stayed at the same settler cabin. When Plummer's opponent walked outside early the next morning, he found the woman of the house milking, while Plummer, grinning at his rival, held the cow's hungry calf back by its tail. At another stop, Plummer helped the farmer's family pick parasitic red bugs out of their toddler's hair. In a different campaign, he printed up a mock advertisement that asked readers for help in locating opponent Powhatan Ellis's allegedly lost trunk, which supposedly contained such items as six lawn handkerchiefs, six cambric shirts, two cambric nightshirts, one nightcap, one pair stays, three pair silk stockings, Ellis lost the election. Context of white supremacy. What a hoot. Uh, if folks have commentary that they would uh, like to share uh, what they heard from this week's first section, feel free to chime in. We're in Chapter 7. That's what we'll pick up when for the second audio uh, segment. Uh, but the number to dial is 641-715-3673. Almost had to get my bearings. Uh, I do not recall a book study session where I laughed more uh, than this one. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. The code again, 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you want to use the free vote line, works anywhere in the world. Uh, just put in the, if you're at Black Talk Radio, you'll see the link. Uh, if you're not there, you can uh, just put in the following address, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, again, it's tiny dot forward slash one 
race and that is the number one uh, when you click on it you'll see a link on the left of the page it says uh, free vote dialer free vote phone uh, just click that it's on the left side of the page uh, it'll open up a small window on your screen uh, the first line it is a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three the final line it will ask for a name you can put in your real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that entered click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the program uh, it is the same procedure if you want to participate uh, you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six when you do so you'll hear the audio prompt press the number one and we will see your hand on the screen and get you on the line uh, with that everyone if you have comments that you would like to share feel free to uh, get your hand up and uh, share any thoughts from first week's audio segment again uh, man Lots of laughs for me. I don't know if I was the only one, but this is easily one of the most humorous sections that I've read uh, in quite some time. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, feel free to chime in. Hey, uh, good evening, everybody. How are you doing, Gus? Right poorly. Uh, this is Devin in Miami. <laughs> uh, I can understand that. Now, one thing I wanted to, uh, to voice is... Um, in the archives, I had started developing the uh, the logic that uh, white people have weaponized uh, sex, and I, and I heard that ring true basically in this chapter. And seeing the way um, white people were dominating each other uh, with anti-sex, and the way that the as I understood it correctly, it sounded like um, a white male was raped and he ended up castrating the white males that raped him. Was that correct? Uh, I think if you're talking about uh, Mr. Potter in North Carolina, it was he thought that his wife was having an affair with these two white people, and so he went and castrated them. So it wasn't that he was raped, but that they okay. he was saying that he had been uh, metaphorically raped because they were he thought having an affair with his wife. Okay, so I misunderstood that. All right. All right, so that's really all I had to say, and um, I'll continue to listen. Anybody else can go ahead and speak. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. If you could speak up, that would be helpful. I'm sorry about that. I don't mean every time I call in, it's low. I know that's probably annoying. I, I apologize for that. Um, yeah, that was quite funny. Some of those parts, these are the ones I took note of. Um, the, uh, the best way to insult a white man was to treat him like a black man. And that um, took me back to the Ben Tillman text that we read, uh, where they were always insulting each other. And, ooh, I don't know, you could be like 132nd Negro. I don't know, we might have to check you out, white person. So I remember they, they went over that and been me quite a bit. They were trying to figure out, like, who was white and who was not quite white. And um, 
the dual the duels also the guy wanted to do a duel with the other guy because he lost a rigged election. So that that really made us laugh over here. We laughed at that. Um, let me see here. And oh, Potter! Potter thought his wife was um, loose, <laughs> which she probably was. And then Potter castrated those two white men. Um, got two years. He only got two years, but they promptly put the law in, if you castrate a white man from this day forward, you will get executed. I think I heard that right. So I was like, wow. And it seems like at the end of this reading, they really highlighted the the white-on-white crime uh, that, that ran rampant. And I also want to say, I know some, I, I've said it too sometimes, how white people... Um, what would white people do to each other if there were no black people around to abuse? But there were black people around, and they were still going in on each other. And I just wanna just wanna make that point. And uh, that that is all I have. I hope everyone heard me okay. I apologize for the low phone. I'll meet my line. No apologies. I, at least I could hear you. Uh, I could hear you better after you spoke up, but no apologies needed. Appreciate those comments as well. Uh, I heard Mr. Demery. Uh, were you going to comment, sir? Uh, yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, I'll start by saying, judging racial oppression by the intent of the oppressor rather than effect on the oppressed is a form of racism. This book seems to be written in an esoteric manner. And Christianized enslavers, you know, I thought about that word, you know, a racist that seeks to use religion to justify his practice of terrorizing entire families and raping each member while profiting all the while. Now, uh, when it comes to Nat Turner, we have to be careful in believing the so-called confessions of Nat Turner because of the ghostwriter, Mr. Robert R. Gray, was a white man. And he would have us believe that Nat Turner was out of his mind. And how did a man that convinced a group of slaves that was living under terror and the threat of death at that time to join him in a rebellion if he was out of his mind? They knew about the terroristic things that white people would do to them and that any act of that manner would likely uh, be their last. Another part of the book, they talked about uh, the Cane, Cane Ridge meeting back in 1801 where a thousand uh, whites exploded into seven days of mass so-called conversions accompanied by 
fainting, ecstatic dance, visions, and unconsciousness. But later on in that next paragraph, it was talking about black people that came to the meeting that probably only some of them came to be at the camp meeting, but uh, most of them probably came for good eating. And it said something about how they couldn't tolerate the dancing and stomping around that blacks was doing after they had put on they, their show at that uh, Cane Ridge uh, near Cane Creek in uh, Kentucky. Uh, enslaved migrants, that's another play on words, uh, influence also began to gall some observers. Uh, but then let's mention the, the widow white woman from West uh, Felicia, Paris, practicing racism, screaming and crying, talking about uh, a rebellion was was being planned by blacks, spread rumors, and it probably was thousands of them doing the same thing, getting black slaves killed just by what they said and the rumors that they spread it. She was saying that the nearby camp was planning a rebellion and insisted that our neighbor check it out. And true to his uh, duty, he calls the militia. And when they come, they just want some bloodshed. They, the whites uh, executed uh, through shooting, beheading, and torturing. I thought it was uh, informative because I'd never heard that Nat Turner was skinned uh, after he was caught also. Uh, and I can raise the point that the ones that they, the 50 Americans, uh, African Americans that they killed, probably didn't even participate in there. They were just out. Uh, they didn't care. Some nigga was going to die that night. And that was in their mind. They uh, they were starting to catch on that the system that they had created and the terror and the torture of uh, the slaves was creating men like Nat Turner and that they couldn't control all the slaves' minds. So that drove old Stephen Duncan to say that we will one day have our throats cut. Uh, I think he'll be mentioned a little later in the book. He became pretty prominent. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's grandson, Thomas Randolph, probably carrying on the family uh, tradition of raping black females, proposing a referendum to initiate gradual emancipation, but emancipation in his words was uh, 
deportation, I believe. And uh, he was reviving his grandfather's dream to make uh, Virginia or to create an all-white old dominion. It looks like that fear of genetic annihilation. Yeah, I want to mention something, too, about Israel, Camel. Now, he had gained some status for whatever that meant because a dignified slave still a slave. But to add insult to injury, they made him wait tables after they terrorized, entered his house, and put a knife to his throat. I did some research on him. Uh, his narrative, too, was written by a white man, but it turned out that whole thing was behind a stolen pig. And uh, evidently they, they gutted the pig and uh, all the evidence led to this one slave uh, cabin. And they ended up, well, we can imagine what happened to those slaves. But also in his book, he mentioned a boy named Jupiter that was given 200 lashes for calling a mistress a red-haired devil. And after running away, he was given 200 lashes. Uh, put a bell tied to his body and given uh, another 200 lashes later that week. And then when he couldn't pick his quota of cotton, given 200 more lashes. That was 600 lashes in one week, and that guy died from that. When we get to Chapter 7, that analogy about the cotton seed and the terrorist slave owners raping underage minors was repulsive, and it brought up feelings of the incorrectness of sexual relationships with whites because... I have to be honest, to this day, you know, it, it, it rubs me the wrong way to see a black female with a white man. And, you know, for this very reason, they've had access to black women for hundreds of years, raping and pillaging. But uh, on page 13, it said, Mississippi Baptist claimed that dark, mysterious dispensations excuse white Christians' complicity in slavery's outrage. You know, I wonder if they thought anybody bought that, but I guess that maybe a lot of them did because uh, black people was continuously seeking uh, the oppressor's religion. And you can understand that in a manner, too, because they wanted some hope. And some of the teachings of the Bible was uh, proclaiming hope. But uh, that whole thing about uh, the conversion process and his wife, 
getting it and he praying and I guess he received it. You know, I, I just don't buy it. And uh, white men's code referring to white supremacist code being forced on everybody shaped the slavery frontier, but also shaped the environment globally of the whole world. And I'll let somebody else speak on Bob Potter, Potter because that guy's despicable. And I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking the call. Right on. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had a hand up, if you had commentary you wanted to make sure you uh, get in, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, greetings to you guys. Um, greetings to uh, Mr. Demery and all the other callers and listeners. Uh, yeah, this session was really a doozy, um, especially after the white supremacist week that I've had. Um, I'll talk more about that on workplace racism, but it was a nightmare. Um, this session this week was really interesting. Um, there were so many points, uh, but I'm just going to try to keep it as concise as possible. On page 209, there's one sentence that stood out to me quite a bit. It says, uh, Randolph's plan would have made all slaves born after July 4th, 1840, into state property upon adulthood. And that just made me think of today. Basically, they were going to put all black people in jail <laughs> after July 4th of 1840. And I found that fascinating because it just really speaks to the fact that literally Every white person in this country, from the highest level of government down to the lowest of the lowest white trash commoner, were all racist white supremacists and, and basically um, were facilitating the entire agenda of the genocide of black people and the complete domination and subjugation of black people. And to me, it really brings home the fact that there is not a white person on earth, I don't care if it's a newborn child, that we should not suspect of being a racist white supremacist at minimum. Um, for me personally, they're all racist, and that's just how I see them. But, of course, in discussions with white people, you can't basically tell them that. So you have to display, you know, basically sense and codification. But that's my personal feeling, and I'll feel that way to the, way I, to the day I die. And I, better, I have a better understanding of my older relatives who had such sick disdain for white people um, and, and why they felt the way they felt. Um, another section that I found really interesting was on the following page on 210 where they said, uh, but enslavers also feared that African-American Christianity itself might generate danger from within. Governor John Floyd of Virginia wrote that every black preacher east of Blue Ridge had known about Turner's plot. Misguided white piety had permitted large assemblages of black, of Negro, excuse me, at which black preachers had allegedly read out the incendiary publications of Walker and Garrison. An Alabama newspaper warned of shrewd, cunning slave preachers. Should revolt break out in the southwestern region, some crispy-haired prophet, some pretender to inspiration, will be the ringleader as well as the inspiration of that plot. By feigning communication from heaven, he will rouse the fanaticism of his brethren, and they will be prepared for any work, no matter how desolating and murderous. And this was just very powerful to me because where he talks about white piety permitting the largest assemblages of Negroes speaks to today where uh, young black males in particular, and I'm, I grew up in New York City um, during the crack era, so it was really serious. But it was back then it was different. 
um, today we can't congregate in groups of more of three without attracting the attention of law enforcement on every level. And it happened back then, but it's more acute now. I think um, we're really seeing a shift into another stage of refinement of the uh, system of white supremacy. Just, just by that statement, um, it, it seems like they seem to have learned from back then allowing us to get together in large groups for them would be dangerous. And today we see that in the way that we're treated right now. And the other thing about it too, was that this brought a quote that Dr. John Henry Clark said back in the late eighties, early nineties, he said that religion must be a religion, um, religion must be a tool of liberation or it should be thrown into the ash can of history. And that really makes sense to me simply because um, Nat Turner the grandfather that he was uh, really took no nonsense from white people and he understood what really needed to be done to solve the problem that is white people and I think we have a lot that we could learn from that and um, like Mr. Demery stated I had no idea they skinned him as well um, and I just thought of that as the ultimate disrespect uh, similar to when Patrice Lumumba was killed and they basically threw after they killed him they burned him after they burned him, they threw his body into vats of acid, and then they pulverized his bones so that he had no no burial whatsoever. And in an, in an African context, that's a way of not allowing the soul to rest properly or to transition into the world of the dead in peace and comfort. And to me, that's what they sought to do to Nat Turner. And it kind of brought me back to the Predator movies as well and how the Predators uh, would skin the people alive and then steal their bones. So all of these things kind of came to me just with that one little section. And then um, right beneath that, it's in, the, in the following paragraph, there is a brief section that said, all religious practice aside from individual prayer would now be kept under the eyes of enslavers and their henchmen, which is what evangelical ministers now volunteer to be. White ministers eagerly promised that they would henceforth work harder than ever to make Christianity into a tool that would help enslavers govern their society, which basically society meant govern slaves. And this speaks to Dr. Marimba and me. And in Yorubu, how she speaks of white, everything white people create or develop would all be tool, tools of the domination and subjugation of black people, all non-white people, and, and basically a contri contributor to the system of racism, white supremacy. And this really speaks volumes to what she spoke about as far as religion being used as a weapon of war against black people. Um, and the following page where they discuss the idea of um, blacks being enslaved and using the Bible as the premise. Um, they said they use, he used, they use apostle Paul who, uh, with his admonitions to service to obey their masters. And then they go into the whole comedic, uh, hypocrisy that they made up. And, um, it really speaks to the fact that white people have always wanted to be God. And that is the way they set up the world, um, by controlling all 10 areas of people activity. It's a way of playing God to all the people who are their subjects. And we have to understand that that is a part of their psychology. They understand that they're uh, genetically recessive. They understand that they are not uh, genetically powerful. And as a result, basically, they wanted to be everything that they couldn't be, because if we study ancient history, they used to worship us. So the whole idea is they want to be their parents, um, according to Dr. Wellison, uh, may God rest her soul. Um, also, on the following paragraph from that, I found this very telling. It says, in this view, slavery's critics were willingly refusing to read the Bible closely enough to recognize that slavery was God-ordained. Abolition doctrines were merely attempts to supplant the word of God with individual will. And this, and, oh, excuse me, and this went 
for potential Southern critics as well as Northern ones. James Smiley, a prominent Presbyterian minister from Mississippi, and by 1840, the captor of 30 men, women, and children, argued in 1836 that a slaveholder whose conscience is guided not by the word of God but by doctrines of men, i.e. the anxiety that anti-slavery Christians, quote-unquote, might have a point is often suffering the lashes of a guilty conscience, but she, he should not suffer. God had created some people unfit for freedom. Slavery was God's will. To worry about slavery was to doubt God, and to oppose it was heresy. This really speaks to me, to the fact that those black people who choose to be Christians are worshiping their slave masters and they're worshiping the God of their enemies. And to me, it makes perfect sense that we haven't gotten anywhere and actually have gone backwards as far as all of the struggles that Dr. Martin Luther King, whose birthday just passed, and all the other brothers and sisters who really fought to try and liberate our, our people, it makes sense because we're worshiping our enemies. We're continuing to do things it's like traveling in circles while you're trying to learn to move forward at the same time. And until we start to discard the, the, the religion of our oppressors, and um, those of us who choose to be Christians at least make it a tool of liberation, like Dr. Clark said. If it's not a tool of your, of your liberation, then throw it into the ash can of history where it belongs. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. Um, then on the, the uh, beginning of the Chapter 7, where they talk about seed, um, and they give the definition for the word, excuse me for saying I know this is a, a PG show, but they give the definition of the word fuck, and it says uh, meaning to strike or to beat and also to plow or to tear open. And it really speaks to the fact that violence and sex for white people is just like, it's like a marriage made in heaven. Um, I had no idea that that's one of the, that was one of the meanings. And I actually researched quite a bit as far as etymology of words. So this one, this, this was really interesting for me because it really brings home the whole concept of rape, the rape of black people, um, male, female, child doesn't matter by white people and how they use violence, violent sex, violent, anti-sex and just violence in general as a aphrodisiac is something that they get off on as far as just abusing and terrorizing us. And sex is probably the most powerful weapon that they utilize to contaminate the minds of black people. And like Mr. Demi said, it really brings home the incorrectness of uh, having any sexual contact or any contact whatsoever outside of the premise of having a job with white people. And then um, on page 217, where he goes into the whole the whole thing with the F word about how they're basically screwing the earth and screwing slaves' wives and all of that, it just really brings home the intensity of how white people use sex and violence as a, as a religion. This is a, a, a really powerful aspect of our contamination by white people. And um, like this, the sister said earlier on page 219, where she spoke about the white people using, uh, calling each other a, or a uh, uh, making assumptions that, or making accusations that a white person had black blood or was black was the best way to abuse them. Really brought home the T-shirt that you brought out um, that said, please respect me as if I am a white person, because to be white in this country and in any other country that we go to is the only way to get any respect. And it really shows that, like, like you have said and like Dr. Wilson has said, um, they have inculcated racism into the language where that just saying the term black was an insult in and of itself. Black was like nigger. It was just the same thing. It was, it was the most insulting thing you could say to a white person, just like today, calling a white person a racist is just as bad as calling them a black person. It's almost like turning on the light in the kitchen full of roaches and they start scattering. You're exposing them. It's very uncomfortable for them and it can bring out things in them that you might not be prepared for. 
um, depending on the, the setting in which that takes place. And also the other um, thing that the sister alluded to, where on page 221, they discussed the abuse of that white people placed upon each other. And I've always said this, I wrote this in essays before, white people have perfected their abuse on one another long before they ever met non-white people. And that ties into post-traumatic cave switch syndrome, which is the origin of white supremacy and their domination of, first of all, themselves and females themselves, and then also eventually spreading into the world to become the human cancer that they are. And um, I found that really, really fascinating, just how violent they were against one another. But it really goes to show that everything that they do to us, they perfected on one, one another first, and then they developed even more brutal ways once they contacted non-white people that they could dominate and control. Thank you very much, and I'll mute my line there. Uh, anybody that we missed, anyone that has not shared, uh, who had a hand up, your line should be open. Everybody who had a hand up, you're content. Uh, I don't know if folks are just listening, but it seemed like there were some other hands uh, from people that we hadn't heard from. But everybody who wanted to share. All righty. Uh, we'll assume maybe they will do so later. Um, many aspects of this uh, segment reminded me of, of Dr. Frances Crest Welsing. Um, just her, her spirit was ripe. I wish we had read this book a little bit earlier to uh, ask her about some of the aspects uh, of the book. But that notwithstanding, uh, the section where it started off with uh, Nat Turner, I certainly uh, concur with Mr. Demery Fore's uh, words of caution. Uh, this is a white author. And then some of the other texts that are referenced, uh, the confessions of Nat Turner, and even in the 1960s with William Styron, uh, that just being extremely suspicious uh, that these white people are probably not going to give you accurate information uh, or it's going to be twisted. Even if it is accurate information, it's going to be twisted within a racist framework, a racist context so that you are not uh, getting a truthful interpretation of what took place uh, in 1831 uh, with Nat Turner. That being said, uh, I just, I had even more respect. Uh, I have even more respect uh, just getting more information about that event and that it was apparently that there was months of planning that went into this given the environment and the context you all have already alluded to that I mean you you are constantly under the threat of death um, and just knowing how frequently uh, our freedom fighters and black people attempting to get liberation um, where somebody snitches on you, you get ratted out, white people find out, and then they come, you know, kill a whole bunch of people, even a whole bunch of people who were not involved. Uh, for them to be able to, to plan and coordinate this for months in advance and carry this, that is amazing. Uh, just awesome illustration uh, of black self-respect. Uh, for folks who have been listening to the cows for a while, I am sure folks have heard the book mentioned, uh, The Delectable Negro. There is a whole chapter uh, in that book on Nat Turner. Uh, it is titled Eating Nat Turner. Uh, I'm not going to read a beefy section of it, but uh, one paragraph it reads, Many whites feared that Turner would literally rise from the grave and rebone himself. This is how some have explained the gruesome cannibalization of Turner after his death. William Sidney Drury, a member of the Southampton community, 
documented in the Southampton Insurrection published in 1900, the exact methods of punishment and post-mortem abuse of Turner's body. According to Drury, after Turner was executed, his body was delivered to doctors who skinned it and made grease of the flesh. Mr. R.S. Barham's father owned a money purse made of his hide. This desire to literally possess Turner's flesh and make use of his body calls to mind the homoerotics of the Neil scenario with Turner's flesh serving as fetish and symbol of the corporal, uh, corporeal possession. The money purse made of Turner's skin and the grease made from his boiled down flesh conveyed the limitless consumptive uses of the slave and the myriad ways in which the ruling class could satiate, satiate unspoken desires and tastes for Negro flesh. I will stop there. The Delectable Negro, astounding book. I think Dr. Tommy Curry was uh, the first person to make reference of this uh, book uh, some years ago now on the program. Moving forward. Um, with the Nat Turner piece and just hearing about this and some of the the 1811 revolt that we heard in the Louisiana Territory uh, that was way, way back almost at the beginning of the book, hearing all of this, I think we've had many dialogues on the program about you know whether or not white people fear black people at any level, uh, even Dr. Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation or, or just what we hear all the time about, you know, I had to shoot Tamir Rice or I had to shoot Amadou Diallo. I was afraid, you know, they, they terrified me, so I had to shoot him 600 times. Uh, hearing all of this, number one, I think that white people do fear that the system of white supremacy is going to end at some point. I think that is totally legitimate. Some people may argue that it's not. I've said consistently that they would not do all of the things that they do uh, hunting down Dr. King and others uh, if they thought that the system was going to be here forever. Two, I think that they are more aware than most victims of many of the efforts that non-white people who have become less confused and recognized their true enemy, white people, and taken appropriate steps. Nat Turner. And I suspect that they know uh, this is good. There's going to be more of these type of black people, non-white people. Uh, we're not going to be able to confuse all of them forever. And some of them are going to start doing correct things and making logical counter-racist steps at some point that could include counter-violence. I totally think it's logical that some white people do fear this. I think it's logical that you had many white people who were fearful uh, at the time that the Nat Turner assault went down. And I think even today, I think it's logical that you would have white people who would say, man, we know what we're putting on them. Man, I hope they don't figure this out and uh, try to get their act together at some point. I'm going to be very cautious being around them in case they have a wake-up moment and decide that they want to carry out some counter-violence a la Lavelle Mixon or Colin Ferguson or Christopher Dorner or any other of the more contemporary examples of what could be referenced as counterviolence. Uh, folks can give their thoughts on that if that makes sense or if it you know, sounds like I'm talking crazy. Uh, the response, I think you all touched on a lot of responses, the way that they refined the use of the religion of white supremacy to make sure that it would strengthen and not potentially weaken uh, their foundation and produce more of these Nat Turners who are using the Bible for some sort of black liberation means. Uh, I thought uh, this portion where they're talking about uh, Israel. Campbell, I think Mr. Demery brought that up before. This is just another example. Number one, you cannot be a white person and be ignorant about racism when they go and wake him up and are like, do you know who uh, Dr. Cotton is? And he says, uh, 
what? Who who are you talking about? Whatever, whatever. And he says that he did know about this guy. And they're like, you know, this this white guy is a little bit too friendly with the Negroes, and we got to kill him and anybody else associated with him. We're not going to have any more of this. Uh, incidentally, if you check the footnotes, Israel uh, Campbell, he wrote an autobiography uh, about his own uh, life experiences, what he went through, endured the terrorism and torture that he went through. Uh, that might be something folks want to check out as well. Uh, but that's just another illustration that you cannot be ignorant and that white people, uh, if they really think that you're damaging their system, they will deal with you appropriately. Uh, I thought that was another illustration of just the total barbarism and savageness uh, that is endemic in white culture uh, where they go out and kill these people that they think are, are plotting some sort of insurrection uh, down in Mississippi and behead them and put the heads uh, on spikes or what have you and Israel Campbell's like wow that, that could have been me man like gosh I almost uh, could have been in the same there are tons of anecdotes just like that of white people going and killing people and uh, hanging the heads up as ornaments and decorations and I mean doing this for weeks months yes this is great we love this sort of thing I mean it is it is difficult to imagine uh, the type of heathen barbaristic conduct that racism white supremacy produces and and really reveres uh, in my opinion even though it seems like a lot of us we're not informed about this we don't think about this we don't make these sort of connections I would even relate that to a lot of the uh, entertainment that you see today that is the exact same type of thing the walking dead i think uh someone had mentioned the predator films with the same type of thing where we get to chop people's heads up and chop their fingers off ah this is great love it love it love it that is racist that is white people um let's see moving forward also thought the portion the quick sentence where uh, they say, but lives were stolen. With I guess you have some of the black people, Israel Campbell and others, who are reflecting, I said this last week, who are reflecting and questioning Christianity, the religion of white supremacy, and saying that I reject this. This doesn't make sense. You can't say that you're a Christian and then come and brutalize and rape us all day long. Uh, where it just reads, but lives that were stolen. This was a crime, not a mystery, to be accepted on faith. Perhaps even God was complicit. Profound uh, remark, which you know I would encourage folks to think about. I'm not going to comment too much on the sex thing because that we've really just gotten to chapter seven and that's the totality of the chapter. Pretty much there's going to be a lot more of that to come in the second chapter. I'll kind of save my remarks uh, on the sexual aspect for the second portion. Uh, I just the etymology at the beginning. Wow. I wish Dr. Wellsen could have read that. Would have loved to hear her thoughts on the etymology of, of uh, the term fuck, uh, particularly how it relates to what she talks about when she breaks down the term motherfucker. Man, total Dr. Welsing moment uh, again. Tremendous loss. Um, is there anything else I want to make sure I get in on this? Mr. Potter, my gosh, the violence. That is something we've talked about a lot. That I mean, we could have been talking about Chirac. I don't want to hear anything about black people being uncouth and savage and black violence. If anything, we got it from you all. And hang on, I mean white people. <laughs> so you all, we got it from white folks. This man. This alone, in my view, would be enough to read the book. You got white people castrating other white people, cracking other white people over the head. Uh, the section where you make sure I read the yes right here. This uh, for me, it's very early in chapter seven. For me, it's 476, but my pages don't correspond. In 1824, Potter ran uh, for state legislature, but an elite. Uh, but elite factions conspired to ensure victory for the old money planner Jesse Bynum. This furious Potter challenged Bynum to a duel. The victor declined, for Potter was no gentleman. Potter ambushed Bynum and cracked his skull with a stick. In Western Europe, from the 15th century to the start of the 20th, the homicide rate plummeted 
from 41 per 100,000 to 1.4. In Western societies, the state claimed a monopoly on violence, and the law became the legally and culturally approved way to set the individual settle uh, individual disputes. But the great outlier in this picture was the South, even leaving aside the unmeasured violence committed against the enslaved. I thought that uh, initial part of the sentence, that clause was extremely important. We're not even calculating, including all of the torture and terrorism heaped on black people. We're just talking about white on white crime right here. At the beginning of the 19th century, the white-on-white homicide rate in Virginia was around 9 per 100,000, eight times that of New Hampshire. That is astounding, and that is not the general picture that you get when white people talk about history, and they are revering all of these people, Ben Tillman and Wade Hampton and Thomas Jefferson, and talking about what grand folks these are, and these are the forefathers of the country and democracy, and what an example that that these are, are men of virtue and civility, and that we should try and emulate their values. That is, I can't even say it's nonsense. It is deception of the highest order. These are brutes, savages, terrorists by their own word. This is what you can look at. This is what we're doing on a regular basis. I've lost count of how many different books we've read by white people where they're just talking about this. White people dueling with other white people, fighting other white people, castrating and maiming other white people. Astounding. This is what you should think of when you think of white culture. This is what you should think of, not them sitting down a suit and tie and doing something not at all it should be this and pillaging and raping black people that's what you should think of um i did think it was a massive act of white supremacy. this is kind of on the sex thing but i guess I'll, I'll leave it there massive act of white supremacy in my part when he is talking about how white men did all this raping of black females number one if he did this much research, and I'm talking about Edward Baptist, if he did this much research and you read all these different accounts and what have you, I do not believe that you didn't read anything about white men raping black males. That is simply not believable. I'm ignorant. He has way more education than I do. He's read way more books than I do. If I have read about and I can go put my hands on like right now in the next 60 seconds, several, not one or two, but several books uh, that document this and talk about this, that this was not... Uh, some unique aberration uh, that this was a regular occurrence of white men raping black males on the plantation the same way that they did black females and black children. That's number one. Number two, it's presented as only white men were complicit in these uh, sexual acts of terrorism. That is not true either. If I, ignorant as I am, victim of racism, if I know that white women were also involved in this, I'm sure that he knows about that too. And I think that that is a standard act of racism. I think we pointed that out consistently through the book, but I mean, if you're really going to go in on the sex thing and then give us the same tripe where you're leaving out a guilty party, white women, and you're also leaving out that this was happening to black males too, major act of racism that I don't think is going to be corrected as we proceed uh, through this chapter. Uh, we have about five minutes before we get to the second audio clip. I was going to ask, number one, if anybody thinks uh, Gus is you know, talking crazy, if it's not logical, uh, my position about the fear aspect and how I think it's logical that white people would have been afraid uh, both before and after Nat Turner. You can even put that the Haitian Revolution as well, that this sort of thing can be replicated. And I can see that same uh, thinking play out today that black people could respond with counterviolence to deal with what we're doing to them. If you don't think that's logical, please speak up. But I wanted to ask Mr. Demi for because I thought that was very important. Uh, if you could just 
clarify, uh, maybe give us a few more sentences to elaborate. I think you said, and you can you know, set me straight if I got it wrong, but you said that you think it's an act of racism when we talk about these uh, abusive acts, when we talk about it from the spe- uh, perspective of the intent of the ill-doer, the racist white person, as opposed to the impact on the non-white person. Did I interpret that correctly? And then if you could just give us a sentence or two explaining what you mean with that. Yes, Ravi, her. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, you you have it correctly. Uh, the whole thing is, you know, if you if you look at the context of slavery, now all this terrorism that was perpetrated upon black people as a whole, we 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 went through a mental uh, uh, damaging process. And then even today, generations later, you know, we can't even bring up the fact of reparation. We can't even mention all the mental damage that was done to the generations of black people over the hundreds of years. And then every time you read one of these uh, books on slavery, you know, they're talking about <clears throat> good slave masters and uh, letting the slaves have Sundays off and all this. And even where you know the book is coming from the framework of a racist because it was a white person that, that wrote it. So that's what I meant by that. And uh, most of them, if not all of them, are acts of racism. Just the fact of profiting on the uh, terror and the offenses that was done against black people in itself is a racist act. I mute my line. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, if other folks uh, have commentary, we have about uh, two minutes. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I don't think that you um, were mistaken when you were talking about white people's fear. Um, I thought about it, and I thought, you know, look at how, how much money white people make off of illegal gun trade to black people in the black community. So imagine if all of the people in the, in the black community that they sell these guns, these AK-47s and all these other big guns to wake up and understand racism and white supremacy and decide to point those guns in the direction they belong, it's going to be a problem. So I think all of the, the, the massive police state, military state type of oppression that we're witnessing today is a direct byproduct of that because they have been um, so used to having their cake, their proverbial cake and eating it too, as far as not only are they making money from us killing each other, but they're also selling us the weapons that we're using to kill each other. And a lot of us haven't put all of these things together that they are the root cause of every single problem, whether it's a family problem or whether it's a, a political problem. Every problem that black people have, white people are the exact cause of it. And if we, enough of us wake up, and especially those of us who have those weapons, and we say we're going to go handle this the right way, it's going to be really something serious for them. So I agree with you emphatically with that. Um, another thing was um, when you were talking about dueling, 
But, um, and the fact that, uh, th- that we learned it from white people, there's a brilliant book called All, All God's Children by Fox Butterfield that really gives an, an incredible history of black people adopting black-on-black violence from white people dueling. And he gives an intimate history. He also discusses Ben Tillman. There's a very uh, good section where, they, where he talks about Ben Tillman's brother, his father, and the dueling that they did as well. So it's a really, really good book that anyone um, should pick up if they, if they would like to find out more about that. And then when you were talking about uh, Nat Turner and him being skinned, it made me think of uh, Shea Guevara because after he was killed, um, they were so terrified that he would wake up from the dead to terrorize them that they chopped his hands off. I don't know if many people know about that. And then I thought about the last session was Israel Campbell. Um, when after they had uh, put the knife to his throat and psychologically terrorized him, they offered him a drink. And it just made me think of the fact that they love to have us inebriated so we're not thinking clearly. And they've always used alcohol as a means to either pacify us after brutalizing us or to pacify us so they could brutalize us. And that should really make a lot of us think about sipping any sort of uh, alcoholic beverage at all, and especially in the presence of white people. Thank you. I'll mute my line there. Sure, sobriety would be best. Uh, with that, we will get to the second audio segment. It's really so much material. I spend a lot more time uh, chatting about all this, but I'm trying to get through the book. Uh, the book is chunky, and I don't want to spend months and months uh, on it, so we'll go ahead and get to the second section. Uh, just the the white people <laughs> training their children. Uh, I thought I did not want to leave without this section being emphasized where he says, little boys in the southwestern towns learned to fight for their honor as soon as they could walk. Catch him down, said a Florida father watching his son fight another boy. Then bite him. Chaw off his lip or else you'll never be a man. That is white culture. That is white culture. (laughs) I don't want to hear anything else about Chicago, Chirac, black people being violent. If anything, as I said before, we got it from you. Second audio segment. Uh, this is chapter seven. Uh, we're picking up very early uh, in chapter seven. Edward Baptist, the half has never been told. Context if, of white supremacy. If you had something to share, if you didn't get to, to comment, just make a note. We should have ample time after this segment concludes. Second audio segment begins now. The kind of white man who supported Franklin Plummer or Bob Potter wanted even more than mockery of the arrogant. That kind of white man wanted politics to change to incorporate white male equality in both political practice and policy outcomes. Ironically, no potterizing politician planted more fruitful seeds of that kind of change than a Tennessee cotton planter and slave trader, a man who on March 5, 1829, woke up aching in Washington, D.C. The Capitol was in the middle of a long, deep cold snap. Local firewood stockpiles had gone up the Capitol's chimneys, Andrew Jackson's wiry old body felt the frost. He had never quite recovered from his campaigns, and under the knife scars that cicatrized his body was a void in his heart where Rachel fit. Jackson believed that the scurrilous pamphlets published by John Quincy Adams's campaign had killed his wife. Mortified by charges that she had committed adultery when she took up with Andrew in the 1790s before finalizing her divorce from her abusive first husband, Rachel declined rapidly after Jackson's November victory. Now, as Jackson rose to his feet, a slave waiting outside the door heard the old man and entered the room. A few minutes later, the president-elect emerged, washed, shaved, and buttoned into morning black pants, waistcoat, coat, and overcoat. On his head, 
where Jackson had once favored a white beaver hat, he settled a black one. At the bottom of the stairs, he found a group of younger men whom he and Rachel, a childless couple, had essentially adopted. Many had served as his officers. As they breakfasted, people collected in the cold outside the hotel at 6th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. Right on time at 11 a.m., Jackson opened the front door. A deafening shout of joy erupted. The president-elect and his soldiers pushed their way down the steps in loose tactical formation. A military chieftain, his critics had sneered, implying his appeal was that of the despot on horseback, whose forcefulness thrills the ignorant. But there was more to him. He and his allies and supporters were making a new kind of government. Not a dictatorship, not a republic. It built white men's equal access to manhood and citizenship on the disfranchisement of everyone else. Yet it was still the first mass democracy in world history. And as he proceeded onto Pennsylvania Avenue's frozen mud, Jackson didn't ride. He walked. Jackson and his supporters had fought through two bitter national elections to reach this day. In 1824, Jackson had won a plurality of the popular votes, but he had been outmaneuvered in Congress after no candidate won an electoral college majority. By 1828, however, he had joined forces with New York's Martin Van Buren and his Bucktail faction. It was the Bucktails who had created the new state constitution in 1821, the one that disfranchised most property-owning African Americans and enfranchised all white men. New York votes were essential to Jackson's 1828 victory. Jackson had also let his northern allies in Congress lock in their state's votes in the spring of 1828 by passing a tariff bill laden with specific protections for Pennsylvania and New Jersey manufacturing districts. But his greatest strength came from slave frontier states, including Kentucky, Alabama, and Tennessee. Here in the southwestern states, Virtually universal support for the victor of New Orleans among non-planter white men made and sustained Jackson as a national force. Previous inaugurations had attracted few spectators. But on this day, it seemed as if every single white rural laborer, tenant farmer, and urban working man in the United States had come to Washington. The Jackson voters, sneered Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster, really seem to think that the country is rescued from some dreadful danger. Uniformed officers flanked Jackson as he marched up Pennsylvania Avenue, but so did a self-nominated escort of firewood carts and farm wagons. When Jackson reached the Capitol and entered via basement door, the ocean of citizens lapped around the base of the building. Then the east door swung open. The inauguration party walked from the Senate chamber onto the portico. 20,000 people jostled forward a few steps. When the tall man emerged from the pack of dignitaries and stood before them, they began to shout, Huzzah! Huzzah! Suddenly, every man in the multitude took off his hat at once, a sign of respect for the apotheosis of their equality, their sovereign citizenship, their manhood. Every breath was drawn in. Cannons erupted in a 24-gun salute. The Marine band struck up a tune, and the hero of New Orleans stood erect above the mist of 20,000 exhaled breaths and looked at the upturned white sea of faces. Then he bowed low. Andrew Jackson had risen spectacularly, yet he still lived as simply as possible for the owner of more than a hundred slaves. Rachel had even smoked a pipe. 
and instead of insinuating that his voters were beneath him, he used potterizing violence to defeat attempts to dishonor either him or his white male constituents. They gloried in vicarious wish-fulfillment as they heard about his confrontational behavior, like the time when his steamboat narrowly escaped a collision, prompting the presidential candidate to run on deck to threaten the other vessel's reckless pilot with a loaded rifle. But Jackson also delivered more than the posture of white male equality. His victories at Horseshoe Bend and New Orleans had made Jefferson's paper empire for white liberty into fact. On the millions of Indian acres he seized, tens of thousands of white men now strove to escape crusty hierarchies by becoming landowners. When Jackson became president, the symbolism of his actions would become even larger. In 1832 to 1833, he stared down South Carolina's elites, including his own vice president, John C. Calhoun, when they asserted that their state could simply nullify federal laws, in this case, the Tariff of 1828. While claiming that he opposed tariffs in principle, Jackson took the nullifier's action as a direct challenge to the power of a national majority. So did a Tennessee constituent, who said, delighting in old Hickory's humiliation of the South Carolina planter elite, the old chief could rally force enough to stand on Saluda Mountain in northwestern South Carolina and piss enough to float the whole nullifying crew into the Atlantic Ocean. The way he saw it, Carolina's planters blustered about mobilizing the militia and blocking federal tariff enforcement until the collected penises of Jackson supporters, like himself, cowed them, and they backed down. So Jackson stood tall before his supporters, symbolizing who they wanted to be, the unpretentious but assertive man who dominated his household and forced arrogant bullies into feminized submission. And as he took out his paper and began to read his first inaugural address. He was delivering to his faithful supporters a down payment of democracy, and not just in the pageantry of white male equality. His policies, he promised, would not cater to the powerful. He planned, he said, to correct those abuses that have brought the patronage of the federal government into conflict with the freedom of elections. This reminded voters of the chicanery that had been carried out in the House of Representatives four years earlier, which overruled popular will and elected John Quincy Adams. More important than any specific measure, however, was the fact that while Jackson was in office, his politically innovative allies, such as Martin Van Buren, used Jackson's popularity to create new national political structures that put white male equality into gritty practice. They created the routines of a party system, welding ordinary citizens into mass electoral forces through precinct-level organization and emotional appeals for loyalty. The historical consequences of the Jacksonian reorganization of politics, which leveraged these potterizing resentments on slavery's frontier, were momentous. They stretch from that cold March day to our own. Yet while the people in their majesty removed their hats and Jackson bowed, Jackson still had on his own hat. Under it, Jackson couldn't help also carrying another set of programs. In fact, he often carried his ideas in his hat, seeds of thought jotted on scraps of paper and shoved into the interior band. And as his speech went on, Jackson signaled four policies that were destined to seed more slave labor camps on the southwestern frontier. These were not necessarily incompatible with the hopes and principles of common white men. 
but their outcomes would also deliver both financial benefits and unintended consequences to the entrepreneurs of the frontier. First, Jackson announced that he planned to address the Indian issue according to the feelings of his countrymen. Almost 50,000 native people still lived on and held title to 100 million acres of land in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. The feeling of Jackson's countrymen was that they wanted that land in order to launch expanded cotton and slavery-induced booms. And over the next eight years, Jackson's administrations forced all the surviving Indian tribes across the Mississippi to free up more land for white and black settlement. Jackson also said that with foreign nations it will be my study to preserve peace and to cultivate friendship on fair and honorable terms. But he had already made it known that he believed that with the Louisiana Purchase, the United States had actually also bought most of what eventually became the state of Texas. The independent nation of Mexico claimed this territory, but Jackson wanted to redraw the boundary line that the United States and Spain had negotiated in 1819 to incorporate most of today's Texas as a new frontier for cottonseed. Jackson also mentioned his desire to adjust the tariff levied on foreign manufactured goods by the most recent Congress in 1828. This unwieldy compromise subsidized America's still weak manufacturing sector by levying import duties, such as the 280% surcharge on cotton broadcloth. American factories could undersell some British goods, but the consumer paid the cost. Although the tariff protected some of Jackson's northern supporters, it hurt southern planter entrepreneurs by taxing their consumption. South Carolina politicians were already pushing for a showdown over the issue. In his speech, Jackson suggested that the tariff was too high. Then there was reform, Jackson's amorphous fourth goal. He was evasive in the short speech about what reforms he meant. Jackson would soon charge that the executive branch's Adams-era holdovers, a hundred or so clerks, embodied corruption. But we know that the president was more concerned about the Second Bank of the United States. Many branches of the BUS had deployed financial resources in the service of the Adams campaign, and Jackson wasn't going to forget that. And although the BUS had stabilized the nation's financial structure, allowing many to recover from the Panic of 1819, many other Americans were not getting wealthier. Most of those Americans had voted for Jackson. He left the harshest BUS lines out of his inaugural address, but he would soon launch attacks on the bank, attacks pitched as a reform program that enhanced the egalitarianism of white manhood citizenship. So Jackson closed. Then he strode down the steps and threw the crowd to the rowdiest inauguration party in history. That evening, thousands of his excited supporters crowded into the White House, overwhelming attempts at crowd control. They drank and ate everything, broke furniture, teacups, and noses, and almost smothered their hero against the back wall of the house. Jackson had to escape through a back window. He spent the night back at the hotel. The party raged on without him, for, as Washington hostess Margaret Bayard Smith sniffed, it was indeed the People's Day. The inauguration set the stage for four years of raucous conflict. Among other things, Jackson faced down half the members of his cabinet because they and their wives labeled the wife of another a whore. And though Congress moved toward lowering tariffs, it didn't move quickly enough for South Carolina politicians, who claimed that they could nullify the federal law.
Some historians have claimed that the nullification movement anticipated the disunion threats of the South in the 1850s, threats that were issued in response to Northern attempts to block the expansion of slavery. But this is false hindsight. In the late 1820s, South Carolina whites were scared. They had not mentally recovered from the alleged Denmark Vesey slave conspiracy of 1822. And they also sensed their decline relative to the southwestern region. In fact, few west of South Carolina supported threats of disunion. And in the winter of 1832 to 1833, Jackson demolished the logic of nullification in a brilliant defense of nationalism. Already in 1830, Jackson and his allies in Congress had proposed the Indian Removal Act, which forced southwestern Indians into present-day Oklahoma. Although some Northerners criticized conquest and displacement as immoral, Congress passed the act, authorizing Jackson's government to evict the remaining eastern nations. By the end of his second term, the vast majority of the Native Americans who lived in the southwestern cotton states in 1828 had been driven from their homes. Before a single Cherokee or Chickasaw was driven from his homeland, however, came the day in November 1829 when BUS President Nicholas Biddle traveled from his Philadelphia headquarters to the White House. Biddle was a dapper poetry publishing aristocrat, as close to a Renaissance man as 19th century America produced. He had rooted out the institutional dysfunction that had led to the Panic of 1819 and rebuilt the BUS into a sophisticated financial machine that regulated credit-granting sectors. More than any other individual, Biddle ensured that the massive productivity increases in frontier cotton fields since 1790 would be converted into steady nationwide economic growth. In fact, since the 1820 trough of the post-Panic Depression, the national economy had already grown by 38%. But the polished Biddle was anxious to sound out the frontier general. For Jackson's source of power was his appeal to a newly enfranchised majority that was congenitally suspicious of the bank's octopus-like ability to reach into their lives. In the meeting, the president thanked Biddle for the bank's help in paying off the national debt. But Jackson also said something that struck Biddle as strange. I do not dislike your bank any more than all banks, said the president. But ever since I read the history of the South Sea bubble, I have been afraid of all banks. Historians have used this exchange to depict Jackson as driven by a backward-looking, broader cultural anxiety, the fear that the paper money printed by banks was not real in comparison to precious metals such as gold and silver. Yet Jackson also represented interest groups that had more practical reasons to resent Biddle's bank. All these sources of opposition would soon combine to fuel a confrontation between Jackson and the BUS. That struggle touched off a series of consequences that shaped both the process of slavery's expansion and the political drama that is the more conventional narrative of U.S. history from Jackson to Lincoln. The link between the cotton field and politics can be found in the strange alchemy of banks. Everyone knows that banks take in deposits and lend out money, but they don't always realize that when banks lend, they actually create money. We call that money credit. As we heard already, that means that money is based on belief. The root is the Latin credere, a verb meaning to believe. And people have to believe in the money for it to work, because banks lend out more money than they take in through deposits. This money has to be paper money, 
which in the 19th century, the state-chartered banks printed themselves. Or it can be numbers added to borrowers' credit accounts on a paper ledger, loans against which the borrowers could write checks. Paper is useful, of course, because it is light. With it, you can transfer large sums in an envelope, whereas even medium-sized amounts of specie are cumbersome. Recall Georgia man John Springs' ride north to Maryland's eastern shore in 1806, in which the gold in his saddlebags beat up the sides of his horse. But more importantly, bank-created money has to be paper, or mere numbers on paper, because only then can money be created out of nothing. And thus only paper money can lead to real economic growth. Imagine an economy that uses only gold and silver, also known as specie. A bank in such an economy could lend no more than it received in deposits, and that bank would simply be a glorified mattress. It would actually reduce the amount of money in circulation. If the money supply depended on the total amount of gold and silver dug out of the ground, the money supply would not increase as rapidly as the amount of goods and services being produced. The price of goods would drop, and the price of loans would rise, disincentivizing investment in new production. When banks create credit by lending out more money than they take in, a small store of value, deposits, gets multiplied into more. Through this miracle of leverage, wrote H.B. Trist in 1825, the newly established Bank of Louisiana had thrown a great deal of money into circulation by issuing $4 million in notes. The bank lent these notes to borrowers, who then made new investments, buying land, supplies, and slaves. The price of Negroes has risen considerably, Trist noted. Borrowers were making calculations much like those of planter entrepreneur Alonzo Walsh. In 1823, a Louisiana merchant offered him a five-year loan of $48,000 at 10% annual interest. For collateral, he'd mortgage what he called from 90 to 100 head of first-rate slaves, although some of those slaves would be bought with the money he'd borrow. Walsh thought he was being offered a good deal. With the work of these additional hands at Bayou Sarah in Louisiana's West Feliciana Parish, he could clear more fields, plant more cotton, and make the money to repay the loan with interest. The merchant, who could borrow the money from the BUS at 6%, would make 10% from Walsh, yielding a tidy net profit. For the larger balance sheet of the United States, this was also a good deal, assuming that economic growth is always good. In this exchange, the creation of credit would accelerate the pace of economic activity by convincing economic actors to take risks and employ new resources. However, left to their own devices, banks sometimes made too many loans, disrupting prices and destroying confidence in the value of money. If people became convinced that a bank's policies were irresponsible, the result could be a run on the bank in which depositors and creditors cleaned out the bank's reserves by demanding that it redeem its deflated paper with specie. Enough runs at one time would produce a panic in which all lenders demanded their money back from all banks and debtors, bringing the entire economy to a halt. Panic is what the BUS had failed to prevent in 1819. Despite that, the Supreme Court's famous McCullough v. Maryland decision defended the bank from angry state legislatures, meaning that, like the Federal Reserve of more recent U.S. history, the bank had the capacity to control the supply of money in the economy. To do so, it first established its own paper notes as a reliable currency.
The BUS backed its $50 million, as of 1830, in circulating notes, with a massive pile of gold and silver in its vaults, typically half the value of its paper money, so that everyone would know that they could take a BUS banknote to one of the BUS's 25 branches and receive a gold dollar in exchange. Consequently, no one ever did. In fact, merchants like slave trader Isaac Franklin often charged a premium for those Mississippi customers who paid with non-BUS paper money. Believable credit gave the BUS great power to stimulate the economy by lending money. In an 1832 letter, for example, Franklin wrote, The U.S. bank and the planter's bank at this place has thrown a large amount of cash into circulation, and the price of cotton has advanced a shade. Cotton buyers felt more comfortable bidding higher for the bales that planters brought to market, and prosperity reigned. At the same time, the BUS made certain that growth was steady and safe by forcing state-chartered banks to keep a fractional reserve of gold or BUS notes in their vaults. In the course of business, the BUS regularly acquired huge stacks of banknotes issued by other banks. Then officers presented this paper to other institutions for redemption. When Isaac Franklin deposited $5,025 of Planters Bank of Mississippi notes at the Natchez branch of the BUS, the bank sent the notes to the Planters Bank and demanded that it pay $5,025 in specie, or BUS. This process forced smaller banks to restrain their printing and lending of money, which in turn made their bills more reliable. In 1829, for instance, bank bills from North Carolina were trading at a discount of 3.25%, even in far-off Baltimore. One could use a $1 bill issued by the Bank of Cape Fear, which funded Tyre Glenn's slave trading expeditions to Alabama, to buy 96 cents worth of flour, cotton, or person in Baltimore. It was not a perfect at-par currency, but far more reliable than paper money had been during the Panic of 1819. More broadly, the confidence instilled by the BUS meant that European lenders were willing to inject their capital into American merchant firms, which in turn ensured that each year's cotton harvest could move smoothly from southwestern fields to New Orleans levee to Liverpool-bound ships and finally to Manchester mills. Yet, despite all of Biddle's success in creating an environment conducive to unprecedented steady growth, hostility to the bank was endemic. Many Americans believed that the bank's power was fundamentally at odds with democratic rule, and not just because it allegedly interfered in elections. The BUS was the banker for the federal government, holding its deposits, handling every penny of Washington's $17.5 million budget. Yet the BUS was also a private corporation, whose 4,000 stockholders reaped profits from every financial exchange the bank carried out for Washington. And yet, Biddle insisted that all of the bank's operations were exempt from the scrutiny of the people's elected representatives, writing that no officer of the government, from the president downwards, has the least right, the least authority, to interfere in the concerns of the bank. Then there was the complaint that the BUS, which made 20% of all the bank loans in the country in the 1820s, chose winners and losers in the economy. For instance, on Tuesday, March 22, 1831, Natchez planter Francis Sourget borrowed $9,000 in short-term credit from the local branch of the National Bank, which he used to pay creditors, such as cotton broker Alvarez Fisk. 
What distinguished Sourget from aspiring planters out in the Mississippi hinterland was his established wealth and his connections. In 1830, he owned 95 slaves, placing him in the top 1% of wealth in the United States. Sourget was also atypical because he was related by marriage to Stephen Duncan, the power broker whose control over the Mississippi Planters Bank and its pipeline of BUS credit, via the National Bank's Natchez branch, made Duncan the center of that state's most powerful financial and political circle. A state bank could be an ATM machine for those connected to its directors, and by 1850, Sourget had borrowed and bought enough to increase his slaveholdings to over 2,200. Yet the Duncan clique of insiders shut out other entrepreneurs. The Planters Bank did not open branches outside the state's original settlement nucleus near Natchez, leaving planters settling in newly opened areas without access to bank capital. True, during Jackson's first term, Biddle amplified the National Bank's lending dramatically, especially via the New Orleans and Natchez branches. By the time 1832 began, at least a third of all BUS capital had been allocated to merchants, planters, and local banks in the southwestern states. If the bank wanted to increase its value to the major actors in the American economy, the new cotton empire where much of its dynamic activity was located was the place to concentrate BUS efforts. But of all the 70,000 white people in Mississippi, only a few dozen received large BUS loans. Therefore, despite the flood of credit poured into the cotton frontier, many of its aspiring entrepreneurs still disliked the BUS, not because it made paper money, but because it did not make even more and give it to them. The BUS and its unelected cliques blocked the desires of less well-connected southwestern planters and merchants, leaving would-be speculators feeling as if they were treated as inferiors. And other simmering energies also led entrepreneurs to dislike the BUS, precisely because it prevented runaway speculation. The desire for risk, speculation, and boom drips from letters like this one to Tennessee Congressman James K. Polk. A.C. Hayes, H.M. Walker, Duncan, and Dr. Majimsey have all returned from a visit to Mississippi and all have cotton-making fever the most imaginable. Tis rumored that L.H. Duncan and Dr. Majimsey have made stipulations for cotton farms. Our friend Hayes is in perfect ecstasy. Hayes told another friend that hands can make $500 each per year which was ecstatic, fevered thinking indeed. Cotton would have to rise to 20 cents a pound and stay there, and the hands would have to make more of it than ever before. Enslavers wanted to experience again the surge that had reshaped the southwestern cotton market during the 1815 to 1819 expansion, but this time they wanted it more so. They desired risk more than ever. And to take the full measure of the volatility that characterized the slave frontier in the early 1830s, one must examine another layer of impulses and desires. Jump forward a few years. Pick through what sprouted from the fields cleared and seeds planted in the 1830s to find one obscure exchange that took place a few years after Andrew Jackson took on the bank. Begin with a picture. Here's a man, a white man, He's sitting in his office in Louisville, Kentucky, close by the Ohio River. A folded letter has just been thrust into his hands. Looking up, William Cotton's eyes run over the white man who has just handed him the square of paper. Then they fall and stick on the woman next to the man. She is not hard on the eyes. 
fine dress can't hide her figure. Or the bonnet, the spill of tight brown curls over pillow-soft tan skin. Her child faces away as Cotton peers over the edge of the desk and down at the rich man's doings. A toddler, gender indeterminate from here. And Cotton sees silky hair, black like that of the child's white father. It's for you, says Douglas. Cotton exhales as he breaks the seal, realizing now that he's been holding his breath. Unfolding, the merchant tilts the paper to catch August light spilling through the open window into the office. This will be handed you by M. Douglas, who will deliver you Mr. Isaac Franklin's girl Lucindy and child, to be left with you until you hear from him. This letter told an old story. Our friend, meaning Isaac Franklin, until the mid-1830s, one of the nation's greatest slave traders, had now, in 1839, married a very pretty and highly accomplished young girl, some rich slave owner's white daughter. So, Mr. Cotton, please, assist in making all things easy. The tale must not get out on the old man. Douglas's eyebrows raise as Cotton's eyes glance up sharply at him, but Cotton silently returns to his instructions. Do what you want with her, but say nothing to Douglas or to the boy as he grows. Keep him and Lucindy out of the way of Franklin's new bride and her wealthy Tennessee family, and don't send Douglas back with a bill for feeding the two. The young woman herself was the means to pay with. Cotton had been chosen because he was a smooth-handed cuff, as Franklin's business partner, Rice Ballard, put it. Cuffy came from a common West African name that had become a generic and derisive term for black men in 18th century America. Some slave traders used it to describe slaves as a commodity. In an 1834 letter to Ballard, for example, Isaac Franklin wrote, The price of Cuffy comes on. They are very high through all the country. The smooth hand was the skill of wielding of power over the bodies, lives, and legal persons of enslaved people, a highly developed right-handedness that ruthlessly extracted maximum value. A smooth hand could always extort submission, fear, hope of reunion with someone stolen, hunger, promises of kindness, or of a patient forced prostitution rather than a brutal rape. Each body had its price. Slavery permitted unchecked dominance and promised unlimited fulfillment of unrestrained desire. That made the behavior of entrepreneurs particularly volatile, risky, profitable, and disastrous. Then in the 1830s, as white people, especially men, trying to build southwestern empires out of credit and enslaved human beings, they sought out more and more risk. This behavior planted the seeds for a cycle of boom and bust that would shape the course of American history. And one cannot understand it without studying both careful calculation and passionate craving. Although modern economics often assures itself it is a science, assuming that people are perfectly rational actors who choose their actions based on a clear, even quantifiable understanding of their own economic self-interest. That assumption is false. People rarely have sufficient information to measure the consequences of one act or another. More to the point, when planters talk about fever and ecstasy, pure rationality does not always drive people's actions, even, and sometimes especially, their economic ones. This is what the great British economist John Maynard Keynes was trying to explain to his readers when he wrote that animal spirits, emotions and desires, drive the ebbing and flowing financial tides. 
More recently, behavioral economists who run experiments on human test subjects have demonstrated seemingly hardwired connections between sexual desire and risk-taking decisions about buying and selling. When researchers expose men to images of attractive, presumably available women, their propensity to take financial risks increases dramatically. When women see pictures of attractive men, they tend to use strategies to present themselves as selfless caretakers. But whether it is evolutionary biology or something else that makes males more financially aggressive when their brains are primed by imagery of supposedly sexually available women, financial risk-taking and sexualized commodification of enslaved women were, by the 1830s, in the minds and in the behavior of white entrepreneurs, tangled in a mutual amplification relationship. Of course, Rachel could have predicted, from her perspective up on the auctioneer block at Mosporos in 1819, that the legal right to rape one's human property would shape not only purchases of slaves, but the broader behavior of entrepreneurs in the southwestern markets. For from the beginning of slavery in the Americas, if not before, white men had believed that when it came to enslaved women, purchase promised reward. Male enslavers justified themselves by saying that African-American women were more sexual, less moral, less beautiful, less delicate. Such claims allegedly excused rape, the rejection of children, the sale of lovers, and the practice of forcing black women to labor in jobs for which white women were ostensibly too delicate. Thomas Jefferson admitted that unchecked power twisted white men's characters. The man must be a prodigy who can retain his manners and morals undepraved by such circumstances. We don't know whether Jefferson thought his morals depraved when he fathered his first child with an enslaved teenager named Sally Hemings. And we can imagine reasons for his desire. Perhaps she looked something like his dead wife, who was, after all, Sally's half-sister. Jefferson left no words about his transactions with Hemings. But a document from another white man raised in the slave colonies of the 18th century British Empire reveals more openly the intimate connections between white men's sexual and financial desires. In the 1790s, Brian Edwards, a Jamaican planter who wrote a four-volume history of the West Indies, published something that seemingly didn't fit with his usual fare of trade laws and sugar statistics. This was a ribald poem about the sable Venus, an allegory depicting the slave trade as a nude black woman riding a shell pulled from Angola by harnessed fish. The woodcut on the facing page revealed that she wore as little clothing as Botticelli's goddess, but the sable Venus was dark and voluptuous instead of pale and pot-bellied. And when she entered Kingston Harbor, wild rapture seized the ravished land of Jamaica. Planters crowded the docks in a scramble, as they did when they tried to grab the strongest sugarcane workers. But this was a stampede to worship at the throne of a goddess of love. The white men of Jamaica, all adoring thee, one deity, confess that their fetish was this goddess who traveled the Middle Passage. Her skin was not the white of English poetry, but Edwards noted with a wink that there was no difference, not at night. And he rhapsodized about pursuing the ideal sable Venus through a sequence of names as stereotypically West African as Cuffy. Do thou in gentle fibba smile, in artful beniba beguile, in wanton mimba pout, in sprightly Cuba's eyes look gay, or grave and sober Quashiba, I still shall find thee out. Edwards had pulled a sneaky move. 
he pretends that the sable Venus is in charge of the planters. Echoing the literary lover's plaint, I have lost control, I am exquisitely captive to the one I desire. Of course, his depiction of the sable Venus as a goddess who lures white men into sexual bondage is nonsense. The poem is about buying slaves. Edwards was not ruled by Quashiba, Kuba, or Mimba. He could buy each of them, or all. After purchase, taking, consuming, could replace longing. Modern consumers who lust for Apple products or other fetishized commodities should be familiar with lies to the self. Likewise, researchers who analyze the psychologies of gambling addicts note the sense of omnipotence that a successful play generates. The universe seems to have abandoned the law of chance and submitted to the rule of the gambler. When Edwards or Jefferson chased the sable Venus, they always played successfully. They took no risk. She couldn't reject them. Outside of poetry, women did sometimes fight back. But in 18th century slavery, the dice were loaded, and most enslaved women ultimately found it vital to go along. Look at the long record of successful rapes, intimidations, and transactions left by a contemporary of Edwards, Thomas Thistlewood. The manager of a wealthy man's Jamaican plantation, Thistlewood recorded the names of 109 enslaved women with whom he coupled over 13 years. He focused on teenage girls, not grown women, and on isolated, recently imported Africans, rather than the Jamaican-born. Sometimes he had sex publicly in front of other enslaved people, demonstrating his dominance over all of them. Nor was he unusual. Sexual opportunity was one of the factors that drew white men to Jamaica. And that's where we will pick up at for next week. Still in chapter 7, and I will add that this chapter is pretty lengthy. Um, this is going to take up most, if not all, of uh, next week's section, uh, just getting us to completion uh, of this chapter. So, sizable amount of time uh, on rape on the plantation, but that'll be for next week. The number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate fascinating place to end I might add uh, with that uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary uh, you would like to share uh, lines should be open feel free if uh, folks were hanging out uh, the first section and you had comments and you didn't get to share uh, if you want to make sure you get your, your comments in about something you heard uh, first audio segment or the second audio segment we got about 30 minutes don't be bashful get your hand up and we'll get you on the line everyone who uh, is with us hand up uh, feel free, Mr. Demery Four, uh, Roz, and uh, I think our female caller who was with us before. All of you in line should be open. I'll, not, I'll nab other hands as I see them. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, I came to the conclusion that you know, the formation of that bank, uh, BUS, uh, and the establishment of credit 
you know, solidified uh, slavery expansion because, you know, you still had a lot of territory that white people wanted. You know, I think they said over 100 million acres, and most of those acres, then Indians uh, were inhabiting it or Native Americans. So uh, the logical conclusion is that, you know, it was open season on Native Americans. And I think Jackson was known as the Indian killer. You know, it's, it's no telling how many lives that Jackson was responsible for taking. And then yet and still, he was revered, you know, in high honor by the whites because he exemplified what they thought about the objectification of others and then the uh, uplifting and the establishment of white supremacy. So with the banks created and the establishment of the credit, you know, and then sending, another thing I thought about is sending, you know, the settlers into those basically uncharted territories where the Native Americans were residing was actually you know, a suicide mission if you would let fear overtake you. But, you know, it took a lot of nerve to just go into a territory just because they told you it was now under control of the U.S. government and then start setting up house there. It's no wonder that there were uh, raids and then the uh, genocide of the Native Americans because they wanted to expand. And he still had mentioned the blanket incident, you know, where Jackson fits the mold of a person that would do something like that too. Send out blankets with disease on it. It would be an easier way to clear the land of the Native Americans. And then uh, the way sex is being used, it fits perfectly in what uh, Dr. Uh, Ani was saying in Aru uh, Arugu, you know, about their behaviors. Everything adds up. The lack of spirituality, the uh, sexualized, you know, weaponized sex, and the genocide of non-white people. And then all at the expense, you know, of making a profit, profit, and... You know, they, 
they ended it this section with uh, Jamaica, uh, you know, white men, uh, white men's desire to go to Jamaica. I'd say nowadays, you know, it's more, it's probably the same thing, but then uh, you have to include the white female in that too. That's the main reason for trying to get to some of these tropical islands that uh, majority non-white, mostly black resident for the sex aspect. I'll mute my mind. Uh, other folks who have a hand up, have commentary, you want to make sure you get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, on page 227, I believe the author was uh, practicing racism. It was very subtle, but it stood out to me just the one word that he used. It says on uh, page 227, first Jackson announced that he planned to address the Indian issue according to the feelings of his countrymen. Almost 50,000 Native people still lived on and held title to 100 million acres of land in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. The feeling of Jackson's countrymen was that they wanted that land in order to launch expanded cotton and slavery-induced booms. And over the next eight years, Jackson's administrations forced all the surviving Indian tribes across the Mississippi to free up more land for white and black, he said, settlement. And it should have been slave settlement because he just explained earlier in the same paragraph that they wanted the land for slaves. But then at the end of the paragraph, I believe he committed an act of racism by using the term black instead. And he made it sound um, very innocuous using the term settlement, not forced migration on foot across all kinds of terrain and weather, um, like walking barefoot in the snow, for example, in order to settle these areas. Um, so, yeah, that stood out to me as a, a blatant act of racism, white supremacy by this white author. And um, also on page 228, there's a brief paragraph that says, so Jackson closed. He then, then he strode down the steps and through the crowd to the rowdiest inauguration party in history. That evening, thousands of his excited supporters clattered into the White House, overwhelming attempts at crowd control. They drank and ate everything, broke furniture, teacups, and noses, and almost smothered their hero against the back wall of the house. Jackson had to escape through a back window. He spent the night at the hotel. The party raged on without him, for as Washington hostess Margaret Baird Smith sniffed, it was indeed the people's day, in quotes. And this just really speaks to the fact that um, I found that hilarious just simply for the fact that the, the uh, so-called president had to jump through the window to escape his so-called white brethren um, who were having a, a rowdy old good time. And it just speaks to, to me to the fact that white culture is mayhem. It is complete mayhem, utter terrorism, even amongst themselves. And um, you can look at like some of the, the different games. I remember I saw an article with all of these different games, and they said that white people have rioted more after sporting events than all of the slave revolts in the history of the United States. And they had all of these images of white people tearing up the town, um, having a great old time. So this kind of just reminded me of that and it made me chuckle. And then um, at the bottom of that same page, they say already in 1830, Jackson and his allies in Congress had proposed the Indian Removal Act, which forced southwestern Indians into present-day Oklahoma. Although some northerners criticized conquest and displacement as immoral, Congress passed the act authorizing Jackson's government to evict the remaining eastern nations. 
By the end of his second term, the vast majority of Native Americans who had lived in the southwestern cotton states in 1828 had been driven from their homes. And that just kind of reminded me of the um, biblical story of the genocide of the Israelites um, against the, the original people of what was then Canaan. And it kind of speaks to what modern-day Israelis are doing and have done to the Palestinians to steal the land that they're currently on. And it kind of gives me, again, that religious fervor of white people settling this land, taking the same approach um, as far as the genocidal approach to the theft of the land of other people, and that just being an inheritance of white supremacy. This is all inherited behavior from their their ancestors. And um, also, this, this... a brief paragraph at the bottom of page 229 is very interesting. It says, the line between the cotton field and politics can be found in the strange alchemy of banks. Everyone knows that banks take in deposits and lend out money, but that they don't always, but they don't always realize that when banks lend, they actually create money. We call that money credit. As we heard already, that means that money is based on belief. The root of the lat of in, excuse me is the Latin credere, a verb meaning to believe, and people have to believe in the money for it to work because banks lend out more money than they take in through deposits. And this really speaks to the fact that, like, this reminds me of the movie The Matrix. This, this is like to me white people setting up the psychological economic matrix of white supremacy, and they they had such a belief in dominating and killing blacks. And and in their minds that this would be a perpetual reality for them, that they were able to create an entire system that all of us, the entire planet has now invested in. And it has become what we know as the New York Stock Exchange and all the other big exchanges around the world. And this was all based on white supremacy and destruction of black people everywhere that we're found. And it just speaks to the fact that the whole concept of money is really fake. It's something they invented, just like they invented everything else. The, the whole system of racism, white supremacy was all invented, but the reality was a violent, is a violent, brutal, genocidal reality for us. And it just gave me a lot to think about as far as that was concerned. And then, um, uh, oh, there it is. Okay. The whole, the, um, the section about the, the BUS, um, Mr. Denley Four actually spoke about it, and um, it was just very interesting because, to me, when we saw that section, it really spoke to which whites would actually control how, how white supremacy would be done. And through the um, Bank of the United States, they were trying to facilitate rich white men being the, the dominant controllers of the way white supremacy would be run. So I found that very fascinating. And it also, um, it also establishes that whole idea about that section on credit. And it reminded me of a, a great documentary called The Money Masters. It's about a three-hour-long documentary about money and the development of money, credit, and all of these things in the United States. And they also speak about slavery's relationship to that. But it's an incredible documentary if you want to understand more about how the economic engine of racism and white supremacy in, in the United States works. And um, on the section on 235, where they talk about, um, they said, uh, this is what the great British economist John Maynard Keynes was trying to explain to his readers when he wrote that animal spirits, emotions, and desires drive the ebbing and flowing financial ties. More recently, behavioral economists who run experiments on human test subjects have demonstrated seemingly hardwired connections between sexual desire and risk-taking decisions about buying and selling. And when researchers expose men to images of attractive, presumably available women, their propensity to take financial risks 
increases dramatically. When women see pictures of attractive men, they tend to use strategies to present themselves as selfless caretakers. But whether it is evolutionary biology or something else that makes males more financially aggressive when their brains are primed by imagery of supposed sexually available women, financial risk-taking and the sexualized commodification of enslaved women were by the 1830s in the minds and behavior of white entrepreneurs tangled in a mutual amplification relationship. And this really, um, really uh, touched something for me just on, in the sense that um, we've always talked about sex and death of black people as an aphrodisiac. I remember Gussie talked about um, the story of the three white people who killed a black male and then um, had sex on top of his corpse. And this, to me, kind of reminded me, like, if you added sex and death as well as sex and the sale of black people, um, it kind of speaks to the psychology of white supremacy and how they really um, get arousal from the terror, abuse, and torture of our people. And then the following section where they speak about the Jamaican planter and his whole ode to the um, kidnapped and forcibly enslaved African woman really speaks to um, the origins of, of what we call the pornography industry today. And um, it just really brought that home for me. And then also there was a final section right at the end where the um, author practiced racism again. Uh, he said, uh, look at the longest record of successful race intimidations and transactions left by a contemporary of Edwards, Thomas Thistlewood. The manager of a wealthy man's Jamaican plantation, Thistlewood recorded the names of 109 enslaved women with whom he quote-unquote, coupled with over 13 years. That's where he practiced racism. He raped those women, and that's what the word that he should have used. And these are the little subtle things that we have to look for that this author is doing throughout the book, just like you called it out earlier um, in the last discussion. Um, he's really a racist white supremacist, and he's very sly in the, in the application of his racism. And I'll meet my line there. Thank you very much. Right, right, right. Uh, other folks have comments that they want to make sure they... Uh Get in. Anybody else uh, that we missed who had a hand up? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Just to uh, kind of ping off of what Raj was just saying, um, he did do that because he said that perhaps, you know, Thomas Jefferson was looking at the young the young child basically as a teenager talking about maybe she looked like his dead wife because they were half sisters or something. It was repulsive. It, perhaps he was a pedophile. That's what he should have said. So I I feel like he was practicing racism there on that one too. That's really the only thing I mean I was listening to the how the gold backed up the B U S I was kinda doing other things, but that really stood out to me, and I was disgusted, and I'll mute my line. Right on, right on. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left, so if anybody had anything that they want to make sure that they get in before we wrap up, should uh, not beat around. Go ahead and get your hand up. Uh, don't lollygag uh, if you want to make sure you get a comment in this week uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, let's see. First... Uh, I thought kind of at the very beginning of kind of at the very beginning of the section where it's talking about all of this about Andrew Jackson and how he was so revered. I mean, he's still on the $20 bill. I have to double check. I haven't been to Mount Rushmore to uh, verify if he's one of the four. Uh, and Mount Rushmore, it's, 
irrelevant. I mean, like I said, he's on the 20. Uh, but I think still revered uh, and thought of as one of the great presidents. I think I've seen, or it's not, I think I have seen commentary over the past few weeks talking about where will uh, President Obama rank and the list of presidents. And then we're talking about all these, uh, you have a, a significant number of white people who think he's one of the worst presidents and mediocre at best and all that. And people look at Andrew Jackson, this guy is great, he did so much. Uh, and his whole record uh, from what has been presented in this book, from what I'm aware of, is terrorism, torture of black people, uh, and really using that to coalesce, galvanize whites, uh, and him talking about all these things that he did to change the political system in this area of the world uh, so that more white people could participate on a more equal basis uh, so that you don't have this uh, more powerful ruling white elite and then landless, less powerful white people feeling like they've been left out of the process and that sort of thing. If, to me, it just it sounds like exactly from what we word, uh, from what we read this week, uh, that's his legacy. That's why he's revered. Like this is somebody who kind of helped us get uh, white people on the same page so they're not arguing and bickering amongst themselves so that more white people can be working together, minimizing conflict amongst the white race and devoting our energies to being violent, dominating dark people, non-white people. We don't have to fight amongst ourselves. We can just take, you know, move these uh, non-white people, Indians and, and niggers and everybody else, move them around, make this money take more land will be great we don't have to bicker with one another uh, I think Roz touched on it's great the, the whole inauguration scene for Jackson and again uh, the chaos the debauchery <laughs> that is uh, an essential component uh, of white culture uh, racist culture and in fact uh, the portion where they were talking about Andrew Jackson and him uh, standing up uh, to whites in South Carolina who were talking about nullification and their fears that something was going to be done about slavery. I did think it was pretty interesting when he uh, was talking about, uh, I guess, expressing his doubts that there were already uh, calls or the thought of seceding from the Union back in the 1830s and saying that in South Carolina they were still in fear about the Denmark uh, VC uprising that we already talked about. Uh, in this book and then on previous programs, uh, that they wanted the federal intervention, the federal military might uh, to be on their side if there were any potential uh, insurrections, if they did have to keep the Negras uh, under control. They wanted to make sure they had the military might of other white people to help them do this. I did think that that was uh, interesting logic as to why they would not have maybe wanted to uh, seriously consider uh, seceding, leaving the Union in the 1830s when they were having the nullification crisis. Also thought the whole uh, imagery metaphor that was used uh, when they, uh, I'll just read the portion, they said uh, a Tennessee constituent who said delighting in old Hickory's humiliation of South Carolina's planner elite, the old chief could rally force enough to stand on Saluda Mountain in northwestern South Carolina and piss enough to float the whole nullifying crew into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, that's all in quotes, and then this is Baptist writing. Uh, the way he saw it, Carolina's planters blustered about mobilizing the militia and blocking federal tariff enforcement until the collected penises of Jackson's supporters, like himself, cowed them, and they backed down. Just fascinating. I consistently uh, say that we should be really being mindful. You should have high alert when metaphors start to be employed. Um, people are talking about issues dealing with racism, uh, white supremacy, uh, to see, you know, what's being compared, what are they talking about, just 
the the metaphor of the penis, a phallic symbol that this white man using his penis uh, to dominate and to beat these other white people into submission, major theme that's been talked about uh, throughout this chapter, the whole the homoerotic nature of that and the urination. We've talked about that a lot before, too. And I think that's come up in quite a few uh, of our book sessions, that being another way that white people can uh, show their dominance. And again, pause for Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, her theory of white genetic annihilation and white being a uh, recessive characteristic, being some way of me uh, empowering my genitals uh, for white people. Uh, I just don't see that frequently <laughs> where uh, black people are thinking, yeah, I don't like this person. I disagree with this person, so I'm going to piss on you and, and show you who's, I mean, wow, uh, incredible portion. Moving forward, um, I thought the whole way that they uh, discussed and deconstructed this, this banking situation, I've heard other people, particularly uh, within the last uh, since 2008, when they had what they called the big recession, financial crisis, I've heard more people talk about uh, the history uh, of credit uh, and money is dead and how this is created. I do not hear people, I have never before this text heard people root that in the system uh, of enslavement and torture of black people. Uh, because this book is, is, and I think that's, again, I think that's one of the, the key points of the book, that all of this, the foundation of all of this is maiming, torturing, raping, pillaging black people. Uh, that That's the foundation of all of this. We need credit to buy more Negras. Uh, everybody's got this fever. We want to go get as many Negras as we can and go and let's get this cotton. Let's get this. Let's get that. Let's get some raping on. I want to rape some black people. And then we can make some money off of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never hear that get rooted in. That is at the crux. That is the center of the financial system uh, and I think that that's very important uh, Dr. Cambon he's uh, said before I totally agree that a lot of times people uh, in his view get confused and I agree get confused and think that you know this is really about green this is really about making some money that that's really what we're talking about is a financial system and financial oppression that's not what it is at all where he says that this is really about dominating terrorizing black people and then a side or, or a secondary goal is to see how we can make some money off of doing that. But the primary goal is, again, raping, dominating black people and then whatever funds so that we can make on the side of that. Great. That's, you know, gravy on the side. Uh, but I did think that that was significantly important to, to get that information. Um, the sex piece, it's, I feel like there's going to be a lot more of that coming down the pike because I said we, we have a, a sizable portion of this chapter left. So I almost feel like that can wait for next week to touch on uh, more of the sexual aspects. Um, let's see. This would just be another one I would, I would have to submit as I've been going, I've been looking at the footnotes and trying to read as we Israel Campbell. I mentioned that uh, during the first audio segment that uh, he apparently wrote us an autobiography about his experiences being enslaved and things that happened to him, him coming and being interrogated by these whites. Uh, I submit that I think white people have read a lot more of these books than non-white people. They are not ignorant. They are very informed. I think uh, I think all of us have pointed out different times, different passages or ways that information is uh, presented or things that are uh, omitted in the text uh, about Edward Baptist and us saying, hey, this is a white guy. We think he's practicing racism in the way that this is constructed or the way that this is written. Uh, I submit that this is not 
something that can be chalked up to ignorance. Uh, I would submit again, I think white people are very informed. I bet if you did a survey or a poll, more white people have read this book than non-white people, uh, which in my view tends to be the case with these type of uh, historical uh, texts. Uh, that are dealing with American history or the history of slavery. Uh, the book last week that I found a uh, song about this slave ship where they killed 122 black people because they ran out of water, a white person wrote it. And I submit that probably most of his readers are white people. That's standard. Uh, it's been my observation. I definitely agree. I think you all already touched on uh, the presentation of uh, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, uh, and that's very, very consistent where people just don't say that that's rape. I think uh, Dr. Robert Jensen is one of the few people that I can think of uh, who's a white man uh, who just in no uncertain terms doesn't do a whole lot of pussyfooting about it. It's rape period moving forward. Nothing else to call it. That's what it is. Uh, where he's saying that maybe, you know, maybe you look like his wife and all this other, it's just practicing racism as as you all have said and pedophilia as well that this should be uh it's rape it's racism and pedophilia all three together and keep it moving uh, also someone revered that can cannot be stated uh cannot be understated uh thomas jefferson andrew jackson uh wade hampton who has i've been saying throughout the book they did all that talking about ben tillman and taking down the confederate flag they got streets named after wade hampton uh, in south carolina and monuments to this to this day uh i think the ame church in south carolina where they had the mask i think that's uh very close to a street that is named after wade hampton you got tons of these monuments that are still up these people are revered and celebrated they're not ashamed white people are not ignorant about what these people did to black people they worship, they revere. That is a part of the religion of white supremacy. And I think people have submitted the whole time that we've done this book that when white people read these types of histories, these type of books, uh, that it is not, oh my gosh, this is gut wrenching. I can't believe this happened. Who would do such a thing? I'm so, that's not it at all. <laughs> In my opinion, it's, hey, right on. I wish I could do some of that. We rock those niggers. Yeah, right on, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, right on, Andrew Jackson. And right, that's why the statues don't come down. That's why you don't hear anybody using correct terminology to talk about these brutes, savages, child rapists, murderers, torturers. That's why you don't hear correct language used to speak about them. You just see their monuments and see their faces on the money that we have to use, that white people give us to do our business. You see them on Mount Rushmore and what have you. They remain worshipped practitioners of white terrorism, white supremacy. Um, the end piece, fascinating. I totally agree. I think people commented because I shared that last uh, paragraph on Facebook this morning when I saw that that was going to be what we were talking about today. People said the same thing. They continue, And they brag about this. Going to Jamaica, they have a resource like hedonism uh, set up where white people can go and rape. Uh, the locals uh, and, and do this where it's coercive and hey you get a little money I, I break you off a few coins and we can stay out I can do all of my sexual exploitation down here in the islands away from you know other white people that I make me concerned about me hanging out with the niggers and then I can go back to wherever I'm from and they come from all over the world to do this if you've been to Jamaica uh, where they had this and other places where they have a lot of black people Brazil, uh, Haiti, the Caribbean in total and it's just here in the states I uh, we talked about that when we read uh, Minister Malcolm's uh, autobiography, where it, same thing, they don't have to go outside the states to do this. They can just go to the Negro part of town and, and do the exact same thing. But again, there'll be more of that to talk about next week. Uh, we did our full uh, three hours, uh, unless somebody had like a sentence uh, to get in that could take like 30 seconds. If not, we can just save it for next week. Anybody have 30 seconds or is everybody content for this week? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
I have a 30 second one. While you were to- while you were reading the section about um, Andrew Jackson getting him and his and his friends' penises to cow down his competition, I looked up the meaning of the word cow. And it says, um, to cause someone to submit to one's wishes by intimidation. So he was basically describing a, psychologically a gang rape. <laughs> if you, listen to, if you know, understand the meaning of the word cow and the fact that they inserted this group of men's penises. So very interesting. You're absolutely right about looking at metaphors. Thank you. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think that'll just, y'all can just keep that in mind for next week. Cause I think there's going to be a lot more of that as this chapter proceeds. And even that is significant. The fact that this is one of the beefier uh, chapters in the book, I'd have to double check to see if it's the longest, but it is easily uh, one of the longest chapters that we've read in this book anyway. And we are on the home stretch. We uh, probably have maybe four left. If I'm looking at this correctly four, maybe five, but we are already past the halfway point. So we are, closing in uh, on the finish line. I hope it has been constructive and I would again encourage, uh, you know, I have submitted and I think many of the other folks who've been listening over the weeks that we've been doing this book uh, where we suspect that uh, Edward Baptist racist white supremacist and that's coming through in the way the book is constructed. I haven't heard anybody say that they think he's ignorant uh, about racism, white supremacy. I would encourage check out some of the footnotes because I've seen quite a few texts. I, I said I got Zong. I didn't even know about that. Uh, it's talking about specifically about the uh, slave ship uh, incident where they killed 122 black people. Uh, check out some of these autobiographies. Israel Campbell and some of the other people, Charles Ball, uh, that have mentioned as we've been reading along, uh, 12 Years of Slaves Come Up. We already read that here. Uh, but check out some of the footnotes because there might be some other text uh, if you are interested in getting more information. Uh, even uh, the insurrection that was mentioned with Israel uh, Campbell, where they mentioned, I think it's Dr. Cam- uh, Dr. Cotton, excuse me, uh, this uh, white guy that they said was being a little too friendly uh, with the Negros in Mississippi. Uh, they have whole books that are written about that specifically, that uh, insurrection in Mississippi. Check out some of the footnotes because you definitely might get some other uh, important reading that you want to check and just you can verify and more information to know. I know we have listeners in the Mississippi area. More info. More info, as Dr. Welsing would say, reading is more important than watching television. That said, uh, we will be here tomorrow. Uh, oh, man. We have, a, we'll have a white woman on the program next week. Some of this information should be pulled forward when she gets here next Thursday, but I'll talk about that later. Anyway, uh, program tomorrow, compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern. 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on news uh, observations from the past seven days. Certainly workplace racism. I think Roz already says he will be looking forward to uh, sharing on that. Uh, Tune in tomorrow. Be looking forward to hearing uh, from listeners. And then we'll also have programs uh, for the upcoming week. I'll give that rundown uh, tomorrow when we get here. We are fundraising for 2016 Invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com uh, when you get to the blog you'll see the paypal button on the top right corner uh, if you're not into paypal drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address uh, huge thanks uh, major appreciation to all the folks who have supported invested in us uh, it is nearly seven years that we've been uh, back on the air since 2009 I uh, hope we have aided folks get a clearer understanding of what it means to be white 
what racism white supremacy is how it works i uh, hope it has been a constructive investment of your time and energy uh, with that uh, i will say again and particularly given what we have heard this week uh, and in this book consistently <laughs> where uh, enslavers are giving Folks that they're looking to rape and torture, giving them alcohol so that they'll be easier to control and they won't run off. Uh, they come and terrorize Israel Campbell and then give him a little alcohol after they've threatened him, <laughs> killing him. Uh, the cure, have a little sip of alcohol. That'll make everything better. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Certainly you do not want to be uh, around or consuming alcohol with whites you don't want to be around them if they're under the influence and i would even submit you should probably avoid being around non-white people if they're under the influence it's just too dangerous and a lot of bad decision making we already got enough problems uh because of racist man racist woman racist child if you're going to be a driver pedestrian passenger you don't want to be under the influence there either you never know when you're going to bump into daniel holtzclaw darren wilson daniel pantaleo uh you want to be clear-headed lucid so you can make the best possible decisions to protect yourself uh, and any other folks that you non-white people that you might be responsible for uh, we just really want to be about making great choices to solve this problem as soon as possible that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. For all of our listeners who are in the uh, northeastern segment of the area of the world known as the United States, I hope you all are staying safe with uh, all the weather advisories and the snowstorms. Uh, stay safe. Stay in the house, really, if you don't have to go out, but certainly if you got to go out and about be as safe uh, as possible we will have another danger from whiteness over the next few hours i think uh, for folks who are in that area that said context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.